Hello, friends, and welcome to the Nugget Climbing Podcast. My guest today is Boone Speed. Boone is a photographer, innovator, and a legendary figure in the sport of rock climbing. He is best known for his role in the development of early sport climbing in America, having developed many of the famous hard routes in American Fork Canyon and the VRG, and he was the first American to climb the grade of 514B or 8C with his first ascent of Super Tweak in Logan Canyon, Utah. We covered a lot of ground in this interview. We talked about Boone's parents and how he was raised and how that influenced how he raised his own son. We talked about his early days of climbing and discovering climbing in American Fork. And we talked a lot about Boone's latest venture, which is a company called Grasshopper Climbing. If you haven't seen the Grasshopper board, it is essentially the latest innovation of the LED light-up board systems. So it's similar to the moon board or the tension or kilter board. And we talked about the need that Boone sees in the climbing industry that he's trying to fill with this board and what makes it different and his vision for the future of artificial climbing. I got to climb on the grasshopper board a couple of days at Boone's warehouse in Salt Lake about a month ago. And it was awesome. It's a ton of fun. The board's way harder than it looks. And it might be my new favorite board. So definitely check out their website at grasshopperclimbing.com. Boone thinks I can train for just do it on this board. And he thinks that he can train for necessary evil on the grasshopper board as well. That's a little teaser for you. Links to everything in the show notes at thenuggetclimbing.com. And please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with climber, photographer, and visionary, Boone Speed. I have this sound check question that I use a lot, and it always ends up being interesting. So it keeps ending up on the podcast, even though I never intended to. And, uh, oh man, one more time, Tristan, is that right? Yeah. So we're hanging out today at Grasshopper and Tristan, I think, or Nathaniel, one of those two guys made a comment about your weird diet. And I have to ask what you had for breakfast this morning. Just a smoothie and coffee. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That's pretty basic. Tristan just freaks out because I, I eat mostly like not trying to, but my diet ends up being sort of mostly paleo. Oh, okay. So I have tried to avoid breads. And a bunch of just like hollow carbs. I eat, I mean, I eat dietary fiber and protein and fat, basically. Yeah. Oh, that's like on brand for this podcast. That's perfect. <laughs> that's that's not weird at all. It just, it, you know, it just freaks him out because um, he's like, I have these snacks, which are basically lunchables, right? And it's like provolone and, and you know, some kind of like pepperoni or calabrese salami or something like that and i we just jokingly call them gluten-free pizzas oh and it but it's just lunchables basically for adults right it's climbing it's crag food right <laughs> it's what bailey and i just take to the crag it's like some pepperoni and some cheese uh-huh. and and some almonds and it's you know you you can get i can get by on that for a long time and um and he just you know he's like that's not real food and but it is (laughs) it is funny i I remember that when i was younger like the first time you encounter the concept of the paleo diet you're kind of like well what what do what do i eat like i can't eat sandwiches what what the hell do you eat 
you know, and then yeah. you realize that you can eat meat and fruit and vegetables and nuts and that goes a long way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Real yeah. food. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what are some other common meals for you? Maybe a better question is like crag. If you're out all day at the crag climbing. I'll, I'll take like salami and cheese and definitely almonds all, okay. all the time or some kind of nut, but I, I like almonds a lot. Mm -hmm. Just raw almonds. Mm -hmm. um, and lots of water. Pretty basic, I yeah. think. You know what I mean? I, 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 um, I mean, I'm not afraid of eating fat or a lot of fat or protein. Yeah. I just know what, what makes me feel good. And if I eat a bunch of sugar or carbohydrates, I just kind of like crash. Yeah, totally. Hard. When did you figure that out? How long have you been doing that? I mean, I would say that, I would say that I got rid of sugar out of my diet for the most part, probably just like within the last 10 years. And it made a huge difference. Really? Yeah. It did. Like I, I think I, I just, I sugar crash really easily. Mm. Okay. That's the biggest difference. Yeah. So like I stopped, I stopped, um, like on an airplane, I won't have any sugar. Like for instance, if you're, if you're sitting on a plane, you kind of have an idea of like what's working in your system and what it's not as what's not like these long flights. Right. Right. So like if I'm sitting there and I'm just like, you know, like twitching <laughs> and I've just eaten, you know, a whole bunch of like M&Ms or something like that. It's just like, you kind of like, Oh, I wonder if I didn't eat all those M&Ms if I'd be twitching and <laughs> sure enough, that goes away. <laughs> so, um, it's just all trial and error. Mm. But I've never eaten, like even when bagels were popular, like I didn't, I just didn't go to the bagel shop. I never really did that. Mm -hmm. So. Um, Was that an upbringing thing? You talked about your dad being a cowboy. No, no. Um, my, my life as a child was, I was a really, really picky eater. So it was like, and they, my parents were, I mean, it was like the, you know, immovable object meets the unstop unstoppable force right and it's like it was always a knockdown drag out you know what i mean about like you're gonna eat that and i'm like no i'm not so um i have trauma from, from all that actually <laughs> where'd you grow up here Lin uh, linden utah okay yeah now they call it silicon slope silicon slope yeah so like it's all like you know, I was, it was hayfields and rural Utah. Like when, when I grew up there, it's 30 miles south of Salt Lake city. And, um, it's right near American Fork Canyon. So now you're driving into American Fork Canyon and you see all of these tech buildings mm. and all the infrastructure for like, I mean, they're, they're planning on skyscrapers there in the next like 10 years. In American Fork? In Alpine as you're getting off of I-15. Okay. So all of that, all of that freeway exchange interchange and all of that stuff is like is slated for huge growth wow and it was nothing there when we were when i was i was working at a i was working at a bronze foundry in the middle of all of that there was like a cinder block factory and a bronze foundry and literally nothing else going on i mean a couple of like old cafes that had been there forever and a couple of mechanic shops but i mean it was desolate 
nothing there. And, hmm. you know, and this is like late 80s, early 90s. And um, we've just watched it start to grow around there. And now it's unrecognizable. Wow. What did, were you a teenager working there? I was a, like a 20 something. Okay. I, I grew up around the foundry. It was my, my dad's, it was where they, it was, my dad helped start the foundry. Oh, so okay. it was all kind of in the family and friends. Um, my dad didn't own the foundry, but it was essentially his foundry mm -hmm. as you know, it was just run by a different guy. Okay. Can you tell me more about your dad? I know that um, I, I got to see that film, The Artist, again. I just watched that that short film, um, My Call, right? Yeah. Made that. Yeah, he's made so many good films featuring you. But this one really was unique because it wasn't a climbing film. It really highlighted your life and your life as a photographer and an artist and a climber and all these things. And he did an amazing job of capturing your dad and your dad's art and... Mm -hmm. You spoke a little bit in that film about the influence that he ha he had on you, but can you tell me more about your dad? Uh, well, I mean, my dad. I think I said this in the in the film. My dad was a dad. He was, you know, um, he was he he had to make sure that he instilled all these things in me or whatever. You mm. know what I mean? We, you know, he was. Um, it took us. We weren't like buds until we were until we were you know, until I was grown. Mm. He was very much a dad with me and pretty, um, he expected a lot from me. And, and I, I don't, I, I don't want to say the word strict, but by today's standards, like he's probably, he was probably strict. I mean, I grew up in the seventies. So I was born in the sixties. I grew up in the seventies and every generation will tell you this, but it was different, <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, and I mean, they were they were strict Mormon, and the, and I was raised in a strict Mormon home, and my dad like they instilled confidence in me. They told me that I that, you know they did a lot of they, I mean they they prepared me for life. I think you know what I mean, and I think that they my dad took that role really seriously mm. i think it meant a lot to him too he felt like it was his duty i think to make sure that i learned everything that i needed to learn and and my dad learned he knew how to take care of himself he could you know he was uh an inventive mind he was a creative person obviously um he could use his hands he could get around you know like he he knew how to use tools and you know, he could, he was a MacGyver. He could fix things on the fly and he always knew directions. Uh, it was almost like he was a, he was somebody from, you know, I mean, he was, a, he, he was a guy from a bygone era, mm. you know, we just don't have people like that so much anymore in our world. Maybe we do. I don't interact with them. Yeah. We probably do actually, you know, we probably have people like that. Although my dad was, <clears throat> my dad was a, a gentleman. Um, he was super kind and gentle to everybody. And I mean, he was gentle and he was kind and gentle to me as well. He wasn't like, he never, he didn't yell at me or he wasn't like super strict or any, like, I mean, he wasn't like a, he wasn't a, an authoritarian. Mm. It was just, he just made sure that I was prepared to live.
my yeah, life. the bar was high, maybe. He set a high bar for sure, I but mean, but more by example than than you know he wasn't like you got to do this. this yeah, is, this is what you got to do. He only cared that I was doing things that I liked to do and that I was happy. He oh, didn't that's... ask me if I was rich. He didn't ask me about anything. He only ever asked me if I was happy. That is super cool. Yeah, no, I was. I I can tell now. I can I can tell now in in the world like how blessed I was to have that sort of an upbringing. Mm. You know, to to not. My dad was. Uh, he made his own way, and he's you know he made that okay for me. Like he he. I mean, he was definitely not a nine to fiver. <laughs> right. But I mean, that that begged a question for me because when you said he expected a lot from you, you know, I, I'm used to hearing that from someone whose parents were, you know, they were, they were a doctor or a lawyer and they wanted the same for their kid. But your dad, for people listening, was this amazing artist and did these incredible bronze statues. You've got two of them sitting here in the house. And so what was that feeling? Like, what do you think? feel like he was expecting from you just to do really cool things to be really happy you know but when when he was really proud of the way i'd lived my life mm. you know he i think he's he and my mom both i mean i'm not religious um and that's but that never really got in the way of our relationship um i i don't know i i still don't we just don't talk about that we never we didn't we never did and it mm. wasn't a big it was never a big thing and that they, I think that my parents raised me to be an independent person, an independent thinker. I think that they maybe wish that I would have stayed religious, but like, you know, that's a totally different subject that it, religion doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to me. So it's not, it just, it doesn't really, I, I, I don't see how it applies to my life or my, my path. Mm -hmm. Um, so, um, but other than that, they were, they're both, I think, really proud of the way I've lived my life. Yeah. You know, what I've done and what, what I continue to do and kind of just, you know, I'm, it doesn't stress me out to like totally fuck things up. <laughs> you know, it stresses me out. The known world scares me more than the unknown world. Mm, mm -hmm. Like I get bored pretty easily. So it's like, I like... I like mixing it up a lot. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's interesting. It's been it's been interesting to spend time with you today because you know you are such an artist and you talk about things like that. And earlier today, you were talking about kind of thriving in the chaos of creativity and creating things and not necessarily being the person you know organizing everything or keeping things really clean and tidy. But I'm in your house right now, and it's creative. There's art everywhere, but it's beautiful it's just so clean and everything's in its proper place and this doesn't Bailey would be so happy to hear you say it doesn't that. feel like chaos <laughs> so i'm 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 curious about that but it's it's not um it's also right in line with what you just said like this is not cookie cutter in any way you know it's it's a very unique space that feels uniquely you i guess yeah <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't a question. Yeah. <laughs> <I guess. laughs> um, if you don't mind me asking it, though, I'm. You have a son. Yeah. I'm curious how you know as you reflect back on your childhood and raising, growing up with this dad who raised you and was strict. How did you think about how you wanted to raise your son? Well, so the other thing is, 
um, is that I had a sister that was six years old, six years old when, when I was born, and she died three months after I was born. Oh, wow. She died in a hospital. She died, she had a, she had a congenital heart issue. She died in post-op. Wow. And um, so the, I think that was a pretty humbling experience for the three of us. I was three months old. I have no idea, but I think that that I was the sort of the beneficiary of um, a second chance, mm. if it as it as it were. And so my mom, my mom and I are super close, and we're just like you know connected really closely. And um, and I think you know when I raised when when so first of all I was never going to have kids. I just, um, I think, um, for whatever reason, it was just not going, I was just not going to have kids. And, um, and I was in this relationship with this woman and we were, we were in love and we were having a really great time in our life. And, and we decided, we made the decision to bring a kid into the world, into, into our world. And like, we, we thought about it from the kid's point of view. Mm. The reason that I didn't want to have kids is because I thought about it from the kid's point of view. <laughs> I don't need a kid. I don't need kids. Mm. You know, it's not, my, my son is not my pet. My son is somebody that I brought into the world. I raised him and his life is his to live. And that was the way that I was raised. And I, I like that relationship between the, you know, my parents and me, right? They, they don't, they don't guilt me into not seeing them often enough or, you know what I mean? I'm not theirs. Mm -hmm. I'm, they, they treat me as an equal. And that's kind of the way it was with Nick. But um, that relationship, she, the, you know, we, we've remained close friends. Um, Kim and I are still friends and we co-parented Nick, but we didn't, our, our relationship didn't, didn't last. It didn't make it. Um, but I think, I asked my mom before, like a week before Nick was going to be born. And I'm like, mom, I'm so run out. Like this is all of a sudden I realized, you know, like, like this kid has been kicking inside Kim for like six months. I mean, she's very aware that, that there's a, that there's a person that's it, it's imminent, mm -hmm. but like, I'm kind of cruising around. Have you ever seen frequent flyers that film frequent flyers? Yeah. Yeah. So, so Mike and I were on that trip and, and Kim was like, she was, I got home and she was, I mean, in her, starting the eighth month of her pregnancy. Oh, wow. So we got home in December and Nick was born in January. How long was the trip? Like almost a month. Okay. A little bit more than a month, maybe, maybe like 40 days. Um, and Kim was totally supportive of me going on this trip. I mean, it was a really important thing for Mike and me both. And Mike, Mike, Mike has a kid the same age, but he'd already been born. So Mike's kid was like four months old oh, when wow. Mike took off on frequent <laughs> flyers and Nick was not born yet, but I got home and I hadn't thought about it, you know? And then all of a sudden it's just like, oh no, this is, this is real. What am I going to do? I'm like, now I'm on the line and I, and it's, and it's like, what am I going to do? Like if something happens to this kid and my mom just gave me this advice, she said, she said, the one thing I regretted about um, being, you know, the one thing I regretted the most when, when um, Peggy died was just all the times that I'd sort of lost my temper with her. Mm. And I thought that that was, the, that was the advice that I thought about, like with Nick, 
I I can I can recall like maybe one time that I kind of snapped at him and he kind of deserved it. He kind of did some shitty things and I was really mad. And but but other than that, I mean, and he was that this is like when he's a teenager, right? Mm -hmm. Like he's already 17 and he's like, fuck you, dad. And, you know, and it's like, I'm like, fuck you. You you can't do that. You know what I mean? It's just like the, it's like the typical, like the typical, like teenager. It's, it's that unstoppable force and immovable (laughs) object scenario, right? When you've got a 17 year old and, and he's confident and he's awesome. And, um, and it's like, um, but yeah, I mean, I just, I use that as my guide to, to try to stay, um, super present in the way that, um, that to, to sort of savor every minute and, um, it's, you know, try to not, try to not like get out of that responsibility, mm. if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. You know, it's, it's, I think it comes down to, are you going to, you know, like we, I tried to get into a cadence early with Nick to ignore bad behavior and praise good behavior. Mm. And that's the cadence that, that we got into. And it takes, it took me being aware of the situation and kind of reading the floor, like, you know, like Magic Johnson style, right? You're kind of reading the whole court before it happens. You're going to, you're like, okay, this is going to happen. And this is, I'm going to look here and this is what's going to happen over here. This is the reaction that everyone's going to make. And ultimately I'm in control of this. And, and the adult in the room, me has to, has to be three or four or five or 10 moves ahead of my kid. Right. So like, um, you know, like just trying to be four or five or, you know, just always trying to be ahead of that and then praising good behavior instead of reacting to just bad behavior Mm. because that just gets really negative yeah you know what i mean yeah thanks for sharing all that (laughs) seriously okay yeah yeah it's a lot yeah it's a lot yeah how did you introduce nick to art he didn't need to be introduced i mean his he's been surrounded by it i mean he's at (laughs) he's in brooklyn at pratt okay he's in art He's immersed in art. That's amazing. That's what he's That's so cool. doing. Did he find his own lane? What is, what is he into? Um, product design. Okay. Um, and it's, you know, it's like his mom, his mom worked at Nike. I mean, we, we, he was raised in Portland. He was raised among, you know, all the, I mean, his friends were, you know, he was, he was raised with the people that, have made sneaker culture sneaker culture Mm. (laughs) and so it starts with that right yeah yeah and branches into whatever yeah um and and that's he's 20 years old going on 21 now and um in his second year at pratt and is we'll we'll find his we'll find his stride i mean it's just a matter of you just start you just you just start making stuff and you just don't stop Mm. and it's always an evolution I mean, I, I remember when I was that age, you know what I mean? And um, he has a really, really strong, solid base mm. and a really good perspective of how this all, how, how things fit together and product design and functionality. And his, his, um, he has, he's surrounded by creativity. Did he ever get into climbing? 
he can climb, but he's not a climber. And he, his first job, he, he worked at Planet Granite up in Portland. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> cool. um, so <clears throat> I would say that there's definitely a genetic component to climbing. And I watch Nick and it's like watching me on video. Wow. It just feels, it looks like he's totally natural. Yeah. But he's it, not bitten by it. Okay. Like me. He, his, his favorite things to do are ski and skate. Okay. And he's super athletic and coordinated. Is he know? built like you? He's built like me. Yeah. 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 He's tall and skinny. Yeah. Well, that's, that's a great lead in. I'm really curious how you started climbing and when you were bitten. So you had this dad who's a sculptor and a cowboy and you're in a brass foundry. When does climbing come into the picture? Yeah, so the, a guy at the foundry just asked me if I wanted to go. Okay. And and um, and this is in 1985 and it's, you know, um, what's today? What's the date? July 28th. Dude, it is to the day. No yeah. kidding. Yeah, 36 <laughs> years ago today, July 28th. Wow. That's no lie. Um, it changed my life. And like, I probably climbed that year. I was 19 and I was, I probably climbed, um, I, I probably climbed fucking 300 days that year or more, 320 wow. days that year. Can you paint a picture of that? I mean, sport climbing was brand new. It was just popping we off. We did at not Smith. sport climb. Yeah, what I mean, were you doing? I, my first trip was to was to my first climbing trip. Well, my very first climbing trip, the first time I did anything outside of my home areas, which is all the Utah stuff, the Salt Lake stuff, and down in down in Provo, all um, trad. It's it's all trad. Yeah, all trad, and and like really scary run out slabs. I loved all that, like low angle stuff. Um, then it went, my first trip was to Joshua Tree. That's the first time I climbed away from home. And Joshua Tree was written about a lot in magazines then. So that was pretty special. Still one of my favorite places on earth. And then in 1986, the summer after, I went to Smith Rock. Mm. That, was, that, that was because there was, a, there was an article in Mountain Magazine. Got it. And you sport climbed. Yeah. And it, but, but the thing is, is like, okay, so we did like... Watts tots, okay. which is like, I think they've added bolts below now. I think that was like three or four bolts total. Oh, man. So like <laughs> when you talk about sport climbing, it was nice to have what we thought were like big, you know, three eighths inch beefy bolts. You felt like you could fall on those things all day. But I mean, there were, there were limits. I mean, it's hard to call those very early days sport climbing <laughs> because it's, it's like... <laughs> I mean, it was real. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It was out, real, and it was bolts. real run out. And but um, I remember thinking that bolts felt a lot safer and much more pleasant to climb on than you know fiddling in nuts and yeah. like opposing like HB nuts and stuff like that. I did that for a while, and I even ice climbed um, until we started until we realized that winter was actually the best climbing season. <laughs> <laughs> Right. No, that's what you did. You climbed all, you know, all year, and then you ice climbed in the winter. You ice climbed and skied in the winter. Telemark skied. <laughs> I did uh, that. I dude, did that for a long time. I know. <laughs> it's really hard. I know. And ridiculous. <laughs> it's really hard when you don't ski consistently anymore. Getting back in shape for telemarking is brutal. Dude, fuck that. Yeah, I, I can't believe. I, I, that, you, you asked me earlier today, like, what are your worst ideas? And it's like, 
<laughs> telemark skiing was a terrible idea because I was a really I was a I was a decent alpine skier. I uh -huh. grew up my first my first job was at Sundance, the ski resort. Okay. So like I had a season pass and it was like I mean this is back when we could ski at Snowbird and it was like $20 lift tickets and walk on trams on the busiest days of the year. You know, just world class opportunity to just ski, ski, ski. That's all we did. Mm. But that was what I did before I started climbing. Climbing, because I was a climber in the 80s, I felt like I had to telemark ski, which was ridiculous. <laughs> Horrible. Your face idea. right now. Huh? <laughs> your face, just your expression. Oh, your dude, face right it now. was like just time wasted. Uh -huh. and, it, and then, and then like three or four <laughs> years later, that was the that was when we all discovered snowboarding. Oh, okay. And that was epic. <laughs> that was awesome. <laughs> Got it. It is a pretty uniquely cool feeling, though, to be telemarking in like six inches of powder and you're like getting face shots because you're down in it, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I really do, yeah. I do miss that. Yeah. That was yeah. really fun. I can't say that I didn't have fun when I was doing it, but, you know, it's like, gosh, if you want to make something that's relatively hard, way harder. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And right. it was like the old skinny skis, like before plastic boots and <laughs> it was leather boots and all that stuff. Uh -huh. It was definitely going backwards. It's <laughs> not, that does not reflect most of the decision-making in my life. That's not the way that I no normally do things. <laughs> so what happened after that Smith Rock trip? Um, is that did that lead into American Fork and everything? That no, then? no. So, so those every single bolt at Smith Rock at that time in 1986 was um, hand drilled. Yeah, that's why there were that's why there weren't that many bolts. Right, that's why they were scarce. Um, but it was the only way to protect those faces, obviously. Mm -hmm. And um, <clears throat> so that was 1986. 1987. I accelerated through the grades pretty quickly. I was climbing, I think spring of 1987, I was, uh, spring of 1987, I was, I'm just trying to think, get the, getting the years straight. Spring of 1987, I did my first 513. Wow. So, so started in 85. A, a year after I did, a, a year after I started, I did my first 12A and two years after I started, I did my first 13A. Nice. And that was a, that was a big deal. Yeah. Then, you know, because 13A would was getting. I mean, I got my name written in a magazine because I did 13A in 1987 or whatever. You know, and then, and then we got the power drill. Mm. We one of my friends got one power drill, and and then we started putting a few bolts here and there. And there are, and we didn't start in American Fork. We first started in a place called Hobble Creek Canyon, okay, which is down south of Springville. It's actually probably in, like generally speaking, better rock than than American Fort Canyon, but limited. Mm. Um, but yeah, I mean, still like near Provo, Utah, and then we started climbing at Red Rocks, and I asked my parents for a power drill for the Christmas Christmas of. 1987 so i borrowed my friend's drill up until so through through 1987 and so like at the very end of 1987 my parents gave me a bosch drill and at that point we did our first trip to red rocks and found some climbing in the sun 
which became the gallery and some of these really famous, like, you know, crags that you, you go now. I mean, they're just ransacked with people. Mm-hmm. I mean, we built the, we, we, we did the, made the first trail over there. <laughs> and, and um, some of the other pioneers of early sport climbing in Red Rocks, like Mike Tupper and a guy named Craig Reason and some other people, even Todd Skinner, had put some roots in down there that were kind of around. And so we were, Todd Skinner had put this one 12C, 12D in, that was pretty cool. And Mike Tupper had put a bunch of 512s in and we kind of went around and did those. And then we started looking for our own walls. And that's when we found the gallery and the wall of confusion. And this is when the walls were steeper than the other stuff that we'd been doing. Mm. Have you ever climbed there? I haven't. I think I've So those at- walls are like probably 25 degrees overhanging, which okay. was absurd in 1987. <laughs> yeah. If you yeah. think about it, like Rude Boys, the bottom of Rude Boys at Smith Rock is probably that steep, but like the agro gully hadn't been bolted at that point. Right. So like, th- you know, you have this boulder problem on the bottom of Rude Boys that's that steep, but like, um, I don't think Scarface had been done until 1988. So like all of this was happening it was all happening at the same time. And, um, and it was just like, it was just a big experiment, you know, and we didn't, nobody knew what they were doing. Mm-hmm. It was like, we were just trying to do what was next, what felt like next. Were you still working at the foundry through this? So that, that then I was still working at the foundry and yeah. I was going to school at, I, I studied uh, photography, graphic design at Brigham Young. Okay. That was the only school that my parents had paid for because <laughs> they both went to BYU. Okay. So, um, so I was studying, I was working, climbing and studying mm-hmm. basically. Do you remember, I have a two part question and you can take whichever one is more interesting or we can just kind of, you know, weave, weave through the, the story here. But do you remember your first day going into American Fork? Or, so I, I used to go up to American, American Fork is just a wonderful spot to go and like, yeah. kind of like make a fire and kick it and, um, and kind of hike around. Yeah. Um, my elementary school classes always went and hiked up to Timpanogos Cave like once every year. You know? Okay. So through that cave that's up there, um, go swimming up at Tibble Fork. We'd go skiing and snowboarding up there. Like when, snow, when you had to walk a snowboard up because they wouldn't let you on the lift. So like we, I'd spent a lot of time in American Fort Canyon, and um, and then one of the guys that owned a climbing shop in Provo had put up some like five four roots up these like steep limestone gullies there, and he told me to t- go take a look at those, and when I did, I did that one day, and just and I was literally I'd just go killing time. I mean, I was thinking I've got to move to Smith Rock or I've got to move to El Dorado Canyon. That's that's where it was all happening in 1988. Um, but I didn't want to live in Bend and I didn't know what I'd do in Boulder mm. either. And so um, I was just looking, for, I think my friends and I were just looking for something to do. And I walked around the corner from some of these five fives that this guy had done. And he just gone up there and like in, in like, hobnail boots basically and like pounded pitons into these corners you okay know? and they might still even be there but like they're not <laughs> they're not american fort classics 
I'll put it that way. Yeah, but right. like, you know, around the corner was an arete that became underdog. That was pretty obviously a dope rock climb, mm. you know, um, like really great, like perfect overhang, double overhanging arete with, with little edges on it. And um, the house boulder, where there's a route called speedball on it, a boulder problem called speedball right off the road. That is obviously really good rock. That's a good boulder, you know, by any standard. And it's, there's only one, there's only one. <laughs> it's crazy. Huh. Um, only one boulder. There's only one boulder. Yeah. It's called the house boulder because it looks like a little cabin and there's problems on every side of it. <laughs> and there's a problem on the, on the side facing the road called speedball that is, it's it's as good as a it's it's like a v v8 v9 with a with a low start v9 okay. probably and it's as good as a boulder gets that's awesome but it's like okay you know and so we started climbing on the good rock mm. and then we ventured into places like the hell cave so that was the that was the follow-up that was the part two of the question was do you remember the first day you walked into the hell cave <laughs> yeah bill boyle <laughs> had gone up there and he was and and um I mean, Bill, nobody, nobody looked around more than Bill. Bill walked up every single goalie and just, he, and, he, and he found rock. He probably put 400 roots in American Fort Canyon. Wow. And he, I remember, I was, I can't remember exactly who I was climbing with, probably Jeff Pedersen at another crag. And Bill came around the corner and he said, I just found these really cool like roofs. I'm, gonna, I'm calling it the overhangs. He's like, come here and check this out. And we walked in there and I'm like, dude, this is hell. This isn't the overhangs. This is, we're calling this thing hell. And, uh, and there was like, there was, uh, you know, fire scale all over the wall in yeah, there. Can you describe it? There was shit everywhere. Like, like party after party after party. Imagine, imagine decades of high school students up there. I mean, I, I went up there. I was so excited about doing the prob the the route called Wizards. It's in the cave. It takes the pods. There's imagine no bolts, no chalk, no nothing there, and it's like that is the line of that looks like the line of strength coming out of the cave, and it's it's an obvious climb, you know. And I just remembered being like, this is the future, um, and looking down at my feet and just like literally everything you know, broken glass, underwear, um, you name it, like beer can. I mean, you name it, it was in there. And so I immediately, all of us, all three, Jeff Patterson, Bill Boyle and I, we all were, became obsessed, but I went up there another day. And I mean, this is like 30 years ago, more now. So it's like, my memory could be, the details could be off. You might some, have somebody say like, bullshit, I was there that day. <laughs> But um, <laughs> I went up there and I, what I remember is that I literally carried two garbage bags full of trash out of there. Wow. Before I put <laughs> a single bolt in. Yeah. And, you know, it's like we walked past Diablo and that Diablo wall just looked like a pile of choss. Mm. Um, I mean, it is a pile of choss. <laughs> but um, it's, you know, that wasn't the thing that was like, that wasn't the most exciting part of the wall. The most exciting part of the wall was that cave. Yeah. And I chose, I did Wizards. Bill Boyle, 
I mean, he was like in his mid thirties at the time, almost, almost 40 years old at the time. So he was like, he wasn't climbing, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't getting into the middle 513s at that point. I mean, he was psyched to be climbing 511 and 512. And so he took what, what became Wasatch reality. That was his thing that never gets done. Sort of the crack that goes across the top. Um, and Jeff Pedersen took, he figured out how to put together burning and we bolted burning with ladders. He mm. put, he put, we, we hauled a, like a extension ladder up there and we just bolted a lot of that stuff off ladders. That's, a, that's amazing. So yeah, burning for listeners, super classic 13B in the Hell Cave. What was the other one that you were? That Wizards. You were? Wizards. How hard did that end up being? 13B. 13B. Yeah. It's got a couple of nasty boulder problems on it, but it's got, it goes up the pods to the right. Okay. So they both ended the same anchors. Okay. Got it. And I finally, I actually went up there this week. I went up there the other day uh, just because I was so curious. It's super hot. It's not the time to be climbing in the Hell Cave, but I wanted to see it. And you walk in there and it it's like walking, it's still just covered in soot. It's like walking inside a chimney and then getting psyched on climbing. And it really is, you picked a perfect name. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Even now it's just like, yeah. oh, it's dark and burned and nasty yeah. and hard. And yeah. Yeah. But it's, it's really cool. It's cool. It still feels like home to me. It feels like mm. my, you know, it's like such an important part of my life that like, I just love being up there. It feels, it's like a frat house. Right. <laughs> and it's like, we still, my friends still, you know, Mike call and I go up there and, um, my wife Bailey, she loves it. We, we have so much fun and you know sam elias and ronnie jenkins and like the, some of the younger generation now are like they've gone in there and rebolted it all and you know just systematically ticking everything in there mm -hmm. it's pretty neat did you do everything in there do you still have stuff that you i like to actually do? until until recently i had done until uh five years ago or whatever actually actually there was a link up called big g that matt lund did um, maybe in like around two after 2000, but, but for all intents and purposes, I'd done everything in the cave until Matt did big G mm. and that included everything up to, um, cannibals direct and that ice cream route and all the, all the, all the other obscure things in there, Satanism and sports. I mean, that didn't see a bunch of ascents until recently. Um, I think it had like one or two, three ascents and it just stood for undone for like, you know, a long time, mm -hmm. a long time. Maybe Cole Bradburn and like, and, uh, and his group of friends. So it was like, there was this group of really strong climbers that came out of sort of the Sandy momentum and Palmer Larson, uh, Dalton Bunker, Cole Bradburn, and Nathaniel Coleman mm -hmm. and those guys, you know, those, they were, um, and I don't know, I, I, I can't doubt, I, I don't know the exact timeline of their development and stuff, but I know that those guys have, have spent time doing that. I mean, Nathaniel spends, I think more, I mean, he's in Tokyo right now. So, um, and then Palmer spends a lot of time still indoors. He's the coach of the momentum, head coach of the momentum team. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're still all like really strong. I mean, really strong climbers. Yeah.
So Cole might have done Satanism because he's really tall and it helps to be tall on that route. Okay. Um, but yeah, I mean, anyway, it's a cool little zone and it's real. It's real. Like those, those routes are like punchy. Yeah. It's not very tall. And when you know how hard they are and you look at it, it's, it, it, it is just like, oh, damn. That's really There's boulder be problems on those routes that like rival boulder problems. You know, it's just instead of instead of working them over a mat, you're just rope. You mm. know, you're, you're just sitting there trying to dial in the nuance off a rope. Mm. And it's, you know, like you can you can get some epic long belays in there. Yeah. Helping somebody figure out a move. Delaying their bouldering session. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I know there's a lot to choose from, but I'm I'm curious, and this can be because of the difficulty or the, just the memory, the experience. But what are some of the the milestone routes along the the path along the journey in the Hell Cave? Like, what are some of the the favorites or just the the ones that really felt significant for you? Well, burning burning ended up being uh, a really important route for me. First of all, Hell was. So the first route that I actually red pointed in there because because wizards the first route that I bolted was wet for a while, mm. and so I basically concurrently bolted hell, the namesake of the wall, and and uh, wizards and hell was my first thirteen B route, and it took me fifteen days. I remember it took me fifteen days to do that route, and it was. It was a new style of climbing. It was very difficult for me. Um, it was it's a it was it's probably a overhanging 20, 25 to thirty degree overhanging stair route. That's mm -hmm. like that's like got pretty fingery holds on it. And I rated it thirteen B. It took me fifteen days, and I and that was a really important route for me because it it catapulted me to another level. Um, I never spent, I, it, I didn't spend longer than, if I spent five days on anything until, until super tweak, it was unusual. Mm. I, I, I made pretty quick work of most of the things that I did. It was like, um, three, four five days for the, for the really hard stuff. Um, until I, until super tweak. And that took me like, like almost 30 days to do it over like four years. Wow. So that was a big deal for me. Yeah. That was, that was in Logan Canyon. Yeah. So, um, once we, once the hell, the hell cave for there for a hot minute was like the whole world was there. And so to get a little bit of space between huge crowds and, and my friends and I, we, we started exploring other areas, Logan being one of those. And uh, so that became, and that's that's a better crag than hell. Okay, it's not more dense. It's not necessarily, and the climbs aren't necessarily better. But I mean, that rock is really good. Mm. That's a pretty special little crag there, and um, and especially the, the route that I bolted, which became super tweak, was like a line of strength right up the middle. Pretty special route. Yeah, and forty degrees probably overhanging. That was a big deal. I mean, the Hell Cave set us up to do that. Was there anything else like that at the time? I would say that I would say that, that 
and again, I'll probably you'll probably get hate mail, but I, <laughs> I don't know of anything in the world that was as steep as hell when we bolted it. Wow! And that's and that includes there was there's a crag in France called Bulks. Um, all those routes in the Frankenura weren't as steep, you know, like those routes that we bolted in the Hell Cave were steeper than anything that didn't have a crack running through it. You know, that, I mean, there were, there were roof cracks, there mm. were roof cracks in, you know, in the escarpment, the, the Niagara escarpment, there were roof cracks in their, their famous steep overhanging stair steps, stair routes in the Schwangungs. But like, there was nothing that was like that steep in that I can think of. It was steeper than anything at Bukes, steeper than anything that had been, that we were hearing about, steeper than anything in Australia, steeper than anything in in Britain that had been done. So all those routes were, were over vertical. You know what I mean? Right. But nothing was done there wasn't, I don't think there was anything like the the hell cave in the world when we bolted it. Like proper cave climbing. Yeah. Yeah. Didn't take long to find more, mm. you know? And a lot of crags spawned off of, you know, from people that had had started climbing, you know, like discovered American Fork and started climbing there and they'd gone, to, gone home and they'd gone, oh, I mean, this is better than American Fork, and they were probably right. <laughs> Ninety, per, you know, when Porter Gerard went back to the to the Red River Gorge, mm. he was dead right. That place is way fucking better than than American Fork. You know, Rifle is better than American Fork, but none of that stuff was developed before American Fork. Yeah, I mean, something else that American Fork or that you guys did with American Fork though was eventually going over to that other wall where deep. Um, Deep Soul, is that right? Uh, Dead Souls. Dead Souls, Dead sorry. Souls, Diablo. Yeah, we're Dead Souls and Diablo, like going over to that wall and taking a second look at it and realizing like, oh, there's there are amazing roots under this choss. So Steve, so so a guy named Steve Blyle put the bolts in Diablo. Diablo got done by a, by a Spanish climber at the end of 1988. So if you remember going back, like I got my first drill in for Christmas at the end of 1987. So Christmas, so then, so then all through 1988 is when we were, I mean, there were probably three drills between us at this point. Um, and all through 1988 was getting, we were bolting. Mm. There were, there might've been a half a dozen people with drills or communities with drills. Mm. So Steve Blyle put the, put the bolts in Diablo. And then the following spring, I bolted Dead Souls. So the spring of 1989, I bolted Dead Souls. Okay. And that was, oh, but in 1988, that was the first snowbird comp. In the middle of 1988, that was the first snowbird comp. That was a big deal. Gotcha. That's when the Euros came over and then they went out and checked it out. Yep. G-Bay. And- G-Bay, DDA. <clears throat> mm-hmm. Yep. That was a big endorsement for us. We were like, really? And they're like, yeah. this is awesome. What was, yeah, what was that like? Because you're I in, mean, up until then, you're in your own little bubble. Like you have no idea. Yeah, you're just, it's validation. Yeah. These are the guys that you read about in the magazines. I was just, I just hung out with Didier <laughs> a couple of a couple of months ago. He, he they We installed one of our walls at their ABC gym in, in Boulder. Mm-hmm. And it was just so fun kind of reminiscing about that. And I don't think Didier had any like idea, like, how important their presence was to us. Hmm. We were in awe of those guys. (laughs) 
You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. Todd Skinner was there at the exact same time. And Lynn Hill was there at the same time. But those guys were just Americans. I mean, it was pretty <laughs> fucking sick that the French were there and validating what we were doing. Yeah. You know? And yeah. we we had so much fun. I mean, it was like, I was just like this, you know, nobody knew who I was. Yeah. At, at that time, people like Todd was, Todd was a household name and Lynn, obviously. And everyone knew who the Frenchies were. But um, I mean, none of us Utah locals, we were just like kind of, you know, shoegazing most of the time, kicking, kicking around and like, hey, I'd like to try that too, you know, like, <laughs> um, it was fun. It was fun, but, but it was a really important moment for us. Mm-hmm. Then the next year and then the next spring, I bolted Dead Souls. That's, that's a really important route to me. Okay. Um, I didn't do the first ascent of it. I popped a pulley on it. Scott Franklin did the first ascent. And then I did a subsequent ascent after that, pretty soon later that summer. Um, and all of this was happening at like, you know, light speed basically. Yeah. When did you start getting recognized for your climbing? Um, there was a, a photo taken of me. Um, I, I started getting recognized in 1990. Like I, I was. I guess the strongest local and the strongest, you know, I'd done, I've done more in there than anybody. I'd done more in American Fork than anybody else. Mm -hmm. And, you know, other people had done, I I wasn't, I wasn't, I'm not saying I was the best climber. Right. Just, it was, it was my, it was, I it was considered my area. Mm. I was the, I was the local. It was considered my area. Then I was on the cover of climbing magazine for the first American Fork article so a lot of a lot of focus was put on American Fork, and I was kind of made the poster boy, and mm. that you know, like, and some of my some of my friends and some of my some of my the guys that were helping me develop were rightfully upset about getting less recognition, mm. which just happens. Yeah, you know what I mean. Totally, it just happens. It, I didn't ask for it for that, but I was getting more done than than. I was getting more done in terms of like, I wasn't more prolific as a developer. Bill Boyle was the most prolific developer. Jeff Pedersen was not far behind him. And Jeff Pedersen went on to develop a ton of climbing, Maple Canyon, Sanaquin Canyon, uh, the projects in, you know, like crags that you've never heard of that you should hear about. Mm. Um, My development was more surgical for sure. You know, things like Super Tweak, absolutely five-star epic world-class climbing yeah uh, the blasphemy wall in the virgin river gorge also sh- world's best wall in the world's worst location <laughs> like it's sick yeah it's the really rocks. fucking good climbing yeah. and like epic you know like position i mean the, the the wall the way it's the way that that wall it's like perfect for climbing you know, it's perfect for climbing. Mm-hmm. I, I texted Andre after he did after he did Necessary Evil in like mm-hmm. forty five minutes, and I was just like, "Good job!" And he was just like, "He sent me this text that was just like, you know, in in his in in his in his language and his English, you know, just how amazing he thought the route was. Wow! And how special of a route he thought it was. Like just how, just how." technical and demanding it is mm-hmm. i mean even though he did it in 45 minutes <laughs> <laughs> right you know it's right. just a, it's a kind of like a, a type of climbing now that's like kind of gone away 
Yeah. In terms of its importance. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. um, it's it's really hard climbing. Right. And it's like that Smith Rock stuff. You know what I mean? It's like really, really technical feat. Yeah. That's what we learned. That's that's how hard climbing happened when when we were only climbing vertical. Right. You know what I mean? Totally. Like we learned how to use our feet. Yeah. So <laughs> I it's fun to watch the 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 new school boulder problems right now that are in the World Cup competitions and that we'll we'll see in the Olympics because they're just old school vertical heinousness. <laughs> <laughs> A lot of them. You know? That's funny. When, yeah. That that makes me curious. When did you start climbing in the gym? When when did that come into the picture? Well, I mean, we we built a gym. We we built a one of my friends in Provo, um he rented a, a storage unit and we and he he was an electrical engineer and he actually like poached electricity and hot wired like a light bulb in there. <laughs> and we used a propane heater and we built we, we it was a it was a like a basically probably a 10 by 20 storage unit with like 12 foot ceilings and we like fashioned a climbing wall in there and that was in <laughs> 1980 1987 1988 was it overhanging what was it like we had one wall that was slightly overhanging it was like 20 degrees overhanging yeah. uh, we put on there with two by fours okay that was our holds that seemed hard <laughs> yeah you know what i mean it's 20 degrees overhanging and on climbing on two by fours like i mean that's a big edge on it right you know what i mean right yeah. if you look at the walls now right <laughs> <laughs> um like that wall we were climbing on today totally yeah. different yeah were you into training along the way climbing did you, you just got strong climbing. climbing yeah okay. and i mean we were rabid for climbing okay that's all we did all of us what was it like were you climbing every single day was it we were climbing every single day wow and 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 before like so once we started climbing like in in the hell cave then we started learning about rest days <laughs> but before that Love it. but before that i mean you could like you know these there's guys in yosemite that climb every single day right because as, as long as your skin isn't as long as you don't have bloody tips it's like a lot of the a lot of the uh, your legs and your the rest of your body are taking as much heat. I mean, you can climb at Smith. Well, you can't project at Smith. Smith Smith needs rest days because but but, but the power is between your elbow and your fingers. Right. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot on your feet too. Mm -hmm. It's a different kind of demanding than like the physical systemic body overhanging demanding that that the caves take yeah where you get tired and you just start sagging off the yeah. wall and you can't hold on yeah yet. yeah just, it, everything just feels impossible totally so yeah <laughs> <clears throat> so what was your what was happening with your career uh throughout all this at one at what point i was working at this point i was working at ime which is a climbing shop and okay. i worked I, I quit the foundry and i went to work for ime were you taking photos? No. Okay. No. Photos seemed like the idea of taking photos, it was just like eating into my climbing time. <laughs> okay. So no, not Because you grew even. up with that, right? Weren't you taking photos of your dad doing some of his art and, and things yeah, like that? Yeah, more for, more for school. Okay. So during school, like for, for my photography courses, I was interested in photography, but it was more of an elective. I was, I was, there was a, my my major was graphic design 
Okay. The photography was a was a major on its own, but I elected to do photography as well with my graphic design. Okay. But it was not a it was not photography was not a passion. It was not important to me at all. It seemed like a hassle. Mm. Um and it just it just got in the way. But but I made some killer photos. <laughs> okay. I made some really killer photos. It just I think I think um between my between my br- upbringing probably some of that like so my mom is as is as creative as much of an artist as my dad is. You know, what is like, she into? She's she paints. She um, she still decorates store windows. She's in her eighties. She can barely walk. <laughs> she's super funny. She's like such a a rad woman, and she still works every day. And she 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 still works with her hands. She gardens like crazy. I mean, she's just. She's she's very crafty also, but like, like she's really talented mm-hmm. and she just gets it, you know? And so I think there's got to be an element of that. Just like my son knows how to climb just intuitively, there's got to be something where like I was just born with the ability. If you look at this sculpture, there's really, that's like structurally, that's a really good shape. It's a good design, right? It's yeah. not just like, my dad didn't just make it look like a person and, you know, like get it, get it pretty, you know, like yeah. it's, it's art because of the, of the shape and the dynamic and the structure of, of what it is. Yeah. Right. So like a good photograph is all about structure. Mm. It's the same kind of structure. It's the same sort of like, you know, like I think it's just got to work mm. or it's not done. Mm-hmm. You still mess with it till it's till it's right. I'll fill in some context for for people listening to this. So Boone was just mentioning or or um, motioning towards a statue that his dad sculpted that's now sitting here in bronze, painted red, and it's a rider on a horse, um, like rodeo style, you know, with with the reins in his hand, leaning back with his arm out. It's probably eighteen inches eighteen inches tall, something like that. Yeah, yeah. I'll find a photo of it. I'll link to yeah. it for people to look at. Yeah. But it's the structure, you know, that, and that's the thing is the photograph just has, has to have a good, a good structure. And I think I just, I think I just get that somehow intuitively. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it's an aptitude. There's a lot of things I don't get. <laughs> sure. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah, I, I'm yeah. just saying like, this is one of the things that just seems like, I, I think I'm, I think it works. I think I, do, I'm, I get it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's like, it, it's, it's, it's how easy you see for things. Me. Yeah. Um, it's how I see things, you know, in, in a, in a structural way. Yeah. Um, much more than a, even detail, mm. you know? I'm curious about that. I mean, when I think of you, I think of your climbing. I think of all these amazing climbing films that MC made that I get to watch and that I've watched many, many times. I also think of your photography. And then I also think of just this ongoing string of innovation, creativity, new products, new ideas that that you've put out into the world that have come out of your mind over the course of your whole life. 
and it seems like you inherited that creativity from your parents. What was climbing fulfilling that at this stage? Were you getting, I mean, were you scratching that itch from root development and projecting and climbing? For, for sure. It, when I say that I was, it was important to me to develop, it was quality, not quantity. Mm. I was never a quantity guy. Like quality, I'll develop quality all day. Um, that's what I'm interested in doing. Again, it's it's a it's a structural thing. Like, how does the how does the wall look? How is it going to work? You know, like all of that comes into play for me when I'm thinking about, especially, you know, after the initial like we need these roots because they don't exist. This difficulty does not exist, so we have to make it. There was a certain part of us that said we just have to do like we need more climbing climbing. Climbing, if anything, was was a distraction. It was a it was like climbing felt so good to me, and it was it made so much sense to me, and I, it resonated so strongly with it, me that I mean it it was as much of an addiction. It was like um, it was a healthy addiction, mm. is what it was, and it got in the way of everything else that I had set out to do with my life. I guess. What what had you set out to do with your life? I mean, I mean, when I started, you know, when I was when I was going to be a graphic designer, I was going to be a graphic designer. Mm. I didn't think about how to integrate that with within Black Diamond or the structure of like the climbing world. I was, I was, uh, you know, I was interested in like I was just a normal kid, like interested in music, and you know, like I played volleyball, and you know, like. Skied. I, I didn't know, skied. you know, like, no, I alpine skied before I climbed. <laughs> like, I, I didn't know. And the thing is, is like, maybe, maybe climbing actually, instead of being a direct, uh, maybe not, it wasn't a distraction. Maybe it was a direction. Because mm. maybe it actually did give my life a purpose. But, but for me, climbing and creativity are separate entities that complement each other, but they don't seem, and I've made them, I've blended them, but only because I think I became determined to blend them. Mm. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. In fact, when I became a professional photographer, I felt like I needed, in order to, to do what I wanted to do as a photographer, I felt like I had to do it outside of climbing. I might be wrong about that. Historically, I think my my I think my climbing photography is some of my best photography. Mm. And it's because I'm so intimate with it, right? Like I understand it. So it but it's not it wasn't my passion when I started photography. You mm -hmm. can look around my house and see photographs that I'm passionate about. Mm. that I care, that I love. You don't see a lot of climbing photography hanging in here. Right. Yeah. What do we have in here? Landscapes, ocean, waves. A guy in a zoot suit, like jumping on the Brooklyn Bridge. Oh, that's amazing. During a second line parade. I mean, these are the, th <laughs> the kinds of things that, you know, like 
growing up in Linden, Utah, you know, I was like, I, when I was a real young kid, I was really into BMX, but like I was into music and culture and, um, you know, things that weren't, I mean, I've come back to appreciate like the, the openness of the desert and like the, you know, um, but like I was, I gravitated toward the city and, you know, I was, I was influenced by fashion photography, art, you know, different, different things, like things that aren't necessarily just, I don't know, landscape photography. Mm -hmm. I, um, my words and thoughts are getting confused, but like, <laughs> I don't know. Am I making any sense? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I'm curious when product development and design came into the picture because you've, you've had a long string of innovations through Black Diamond and then, you know, Pusher and really changing indoor climbing. Yeah. So I think that the common through line through all of that is the need, the like, we, I've been, so I was on the very cutting edge, like the very leading edge of sport climbing. My, it, it, like, I think they attribute sport, like they sort of pin it to like 1983 is like the official birth date of sport climbing. So like I was there, mm -hmm. I was there for the first plastic holds. I was there for, you know, like we were, you know, we were, we were spray spray gluing carpet to a, like a, like basically a crazy chair crazy creek chair for like for bouldering on you know like there were no crash pads when i was bouldering <laughs> so it's like we've actually just created stuff for ourselves mm -hmm. the the holds that we were creating at pusher is because we needed them we didn't want it we we needed features we needed things that you couldn't just grab onto we needed things that you could push off of and and learn how to and, and climb a different way than just like like these little finger buckets that, two by fours yeah or holds <laughs> you know what i mean yeah yeah features not holds mm -hmm. is how we thought about it and then you know with with even with grasshopper now it's like this is the this is the coolest this is i mean i i think my i think the i think the grasshopper wall in its full glory is <laughs> the best climbing wall on planet earth and it's we need it you know what i mean like yeah, we, I, love it. we I need it i need it for me mm. it, it fills you know it, it like these things i need these things in my life mm. so so they don't exist so i figure out how to create them and it's it's like um i think it's that simple mm -hmm. we needed bouldering mats we created bouldering mats yeah, you did you invent the crash pad? Well, I can't say that anyone really <laughs> invented it. What I can say is that is that the um, John Sherman and Bruce Pottinger from an old company called Kinaloa created simultaneously like Betamax and VHS. Mike Call and I created the spot, and our thinking was different than the way that John Sherman and Bruce Pottinger were thinking about it. But, but, but the Bruce Pottinger and John Sherman created what has become the original, like the prototype for the way that the, the bouldering mat has, has mm. evolved. Mm -hmm. It folded in the middle. It's two and a half inches thick. You know, it's like, 
um, it's a real bouldering mat. Mm -hmm. The way that, I mean, we didn't have bouldering mats when we invented the spot. And it was just as important for me to have a place to chill and to carry all my shit. Mm. So like there was a slightly different, uh, it was a different design brief, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's great. Well, it's we, funny cause it's kind of come all the way back around and now I just actually bought a new black diamond pack. That's like the new spot yeah. essentially. Yeah, exactly. So, so yeah, it's like a one inch thick foam, but you can fold it into a backpack and exactly. carry all your stuff. And yeah. once you use that style of, for cracking, you'll never go back. Totally. It carries everything you need. Yeah. <laughs> you're and yard sailing when you get there anyway. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And you're just now you now you have a place to chill. Yeah. That was really important for us. And it worked for us. I mean, God, I mean, even having a spot. I mean, I felt like I was cheating when I, I had literally a spot when I did um Midnight Lightning. You know <laughs> what I mean? And the generation before me had used wood chips. Wood chips. Yeah. Man. over that slab so like a rock and there'd been a couple of busted arms and you know so it, it already had a reputation and so it was like well i just threw my spot down and it seemed like cheating <laughs> <laughs> and now if you go to a boulder problem like that anywhere i mean it's yeah like if you don't have four, if you don't have four crash pads then like what the hell are you doing yeah. Well, then if you don't have four crash pads, then you're going around and asking for, yeah. for the four. You're going to, yeah, you're going to find a way why to get them. Why stop there? Because if you, you know, spring <laughs> out, I mean, you might as well have eight, right? Uh -huh. um, yeah. Yeah. Top roping seems almost better nowadays. <laughs> Less impact. Yeah. But, um, you know, so, so yeah, I mean, that's the through line. We, we created roots that we needed mm. in American Fork. Then, um, then we created photography that we needed for Pusher. And that was really important because the photography that we, that we envisioned for Pusher didn't exist. So, mm -hmm. we, so we made it. We made the holds that we needed because we, we knew that little, just little grips weren't enough. Um, and, and then, you know, now, like I said, I mean, um, oh, created bouldering pads because we needed them. Mm. What, so let's get into Grasshopper then. What, what was the need that, what is the need that you have? What is the need that you were feeling? The need that has arisen from the convergence of the technology, the, the LED board, the idea of the LED board is brilliant. Um, it allows us to um, have unlimited access to unlimited routes. And the thing that's most, most important to me it, or, or a very high on the priority list is that those problems don't change. They remain the same. They become, they become destinations on their own. So what's the difference between an indoor gym and a crag? The crag problems, they don't change. The midnight lightning that we were just talking about, it's just still midnight lightning. It might be greasier now, but it's still midnight lightning. And if you and I both go do that, you know, we can, we can talk about it. It's a, there's a memory there. Mm -hmm. I can go back and do it. I can go back and I can show it to my son. Mm. You know what I mean? Like all of this is important. If it just changed all the time, that's the thing I don't like about indoor climbing is it's just temp temporal and it just changes. And so like the most important, it's, it turns out that it's not like just because it's artificial, 
because I don't really care, honestly. Like, I love climbing on artificial walls. I love climbing on the moon board. I love climbing on the grasshopper board. I love climbing on like all of these boards because like there there's classics, <laughs> you know, like mm -hmm. all these boards have classics. And so that's, that's a really important thing. And then for me, the thing that I needed was, you know, like the first versions of the boards, I mean, it's written right on there train hard, climb harder. And like, that, that's just a limited scope of what, of what the board can do. Mm. I want to train endurance on the board. I want to have fun on the board. I want to warm up on the board. And that's what we've designed into the, into the grasshopper board. You know what I mean? And um, I think we were super successful with it. And it's become, you know, I mean, I still have aspirations for climbing outside, but like with starting a business, having limited time, getting older, having other interests, like I'm, it's, it's the best thing that's happened to my climbing in the last, since the days that I was sitting in hell for 40 <laughs> to 60 hours a week. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I have not since, since the middle 1990s, I have not had Look, if you want to get like we like and I personally maxed out the hell cave. I absolutely squeezed every drop of my own potential out of that crack. And I did it with I did it by keeping inertia going for 3 or 4 years in the cycle that I was allowed to climb in the hell cave. So it's like from March until November, middle of November. And then it's four months off. And what do you do? You, you scratch and you figure out what you're going to do, but then you go straight back in in March. And I was able to do that for four or five years. Mm. And I feel like that was a lot. Um, since I just lost that um, opportunity based on other things, being busy and things like that, I'm not going to spend 60 hours a week in the hell cave anymore. Yeah, you'd probably go crazy too. You've already yeah, done everything. Yeah, like things would, things would, you know. So, so this is since then, I've just kind of been like, kind of uh, drifting mm. in my climbing. And I mean, I, I mean, I have had a wonderful climbing life. So my drifting is like, I mean, I'm <laughs> super blessed, right? Mm -hmm. Like, yeah. I get that, but I haven't really sunk my teeth into anything. For, mm. for 25 years. And so this, you know, we've created something. It's an apparatus that I can sink my teeth into. I can actually get strong and fit and I can do everything I need to do. And I can do it on my own time, in my own space. And it's absolutely changed everything about climbing for me again. Mm. And, I'm not, and I'm not exaggerating. Yeah. <laughs> It's given me everything back that I need. It's given me a path to success. That's amazing. I think you could train for just do it on that board. Mm. I think you could set yourself up a system on that board to train for your, your, like your life goal. And I think it would be easier to do that than to like chase the weather mm. and the conditions. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean?
Yeah. I'm not telling you, I'm not telling you what to do. I'm just saying I, I, I see this as a way to, to experiment, learn, learn things that work that are not seasonally based mm-hmm. and to repeat cycles on the same apparatus. Yeah. You know, you were talking about going to Waco and, you know, for the winter and like nothing better than going to Waco in the winter. But, you know, that, that is a, that is a solid power infusion for two months of a year. What do you do the other 10 months? Right. Right. Now, now you could, I mean, obviously go to Waco for two, two months in the winter. That's awesome. But now you can continue to, you can take, you can download after Waco, you can like send some stuff and then you can pick right back up where you left off in March on your board now. Mm-hmm. And you can do just as hard a bouldering and you can do just as hard of projects. You know what I mean? You can learn things and like on our board, you can do it right, left, right, or left, right, left, because it's, <laughs> it, because it's mirrored. Mm-hmm. So you can get, you can, you can incorporate all of that and into balanced. I mean, imagine if you could do full service and mirror it. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it was just part of your daily routine. Yeah, that really resonates. I mean, some of my best progress in all, I, I'm really into training. I've done a lot of it. And I think the two winters that I've really catapulted my climbing forward, uh, two winters in a row, I did the same thing. I lived in this house in Bend and I had built my own home woody. And I had a really simple training routine. I did some hangboarding and I did some lifting and then I would climb on my woody. And I had projects on there, but I would always also try to do perfect repeats of stuff that I had done. And it was what you're describing. It was like this familiarity and just this kind of math, like really giving myself a chance to lock into a simple pursuit and work towards mastery, you know, in this narrow scope. And then sure enough, that translated to like all these amazing boulders I wanted to do in Bishop. And I had this amazing trip, you know? Yep. Yeah, that's cool. I believe that a hundred percent. And so as long as we just keep randomizing things, I mean, you know, it's like there is this, there is repetition is important as a path to mastery. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? I think, I think when we start thinking about this, like flipping that script a little bit. I mean, we've got like back, back when I was climbing my best, I didn't have access to anything but the hell cave for a couple of years. Mm. So it was like running laps on, in the, in the hell cave on roots. Right. And then all of a sudden now we have, then, then, then we started exploring and finding new stuff and that process of repetition and mastery goes away. You know, we would, we would do things with like three second locks. You know what I mean? And, mm-hmm. and, and I mean, there's the classic, those old stories of like Scott Franklin doing churning in his sneakers and doing churning blindfolded. And, <laughs> and like, you know, like that's when I guarantee he's never been stronger. Mm. You know, he was never stronger. And when I was, when I was running laps on burning and up climbing and down climbing through the crux, like, and then up climbing it again, like I've probably never been stronger. Do you remember what a day in the life was at that time? Like walk me through a day in the hell cave when you were a couple of years in, a few years into it and just like in your routine. Do you remember I mean, what you would do? Yeah. I mean, warm up, 
the first root of the day would be burning through the fifth bolt. Okay. Because it felt like 511. It's not, but it felt like it. And and then when I was really strong, my 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 best my when I was the strongest, I'd go through burning, I'd go to the fifth bolt, I'd down climb to the fourth bolt, and then I'd climb to the chains on it. <laughs> that was probably 13 plus ish, maybe, maybe even a little bit harder. That was that was a solid. Then we would um then run a lap on hell probably another 13b probably run like i could do dead souls on command wow um you know and then and then you run a, run a hot lap on on malvado and then we had these um these uh traverses and there was a traverse underneath um i'm going to i'm going to space the name of the traverse i should i should have it but um we had a name for it and uh, it, w- it went uh, underneath, started basically underneath hell and traversed right up the hill. It's probably V7 boulder problem right into reanimator. And that was, and we'd have a, we wouldn't lead that. We'd top, we'd top rope that. What's but that I mean, one? And that would be, that would be another four, uh, 13 plus ish. So we were, you know, like we had 13 plus pretty much on lock. Wow. Back in the day when, when those grades were pretty hard. Yeah. I mean, that was, they were, they were hard then. You know, this is, I almost asked about this earlier and then we moved away from it, but I, I want to ask about it because I'm curious. Can you tell me more about the root ice cream? I'm interested in it because I think it's your hardest route still, right? Yeah, probably. 14C. Yeah. It hasn't been repeated since, since David. Okay. So, so it's only had three repeats by James Litz, J- Jared Roth, and Dave Graham. Okay. And then it broke. Oh. And then it's been restored. Okay. And I'm... people have been on it this year. Okay. And last year, but nobody did it. I love the name. Ice so, Cream in Hell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so, and it's funny because it was a little bit of a, it was a little bit of a play on words because there was this drip this little tiny stalactite that literally looked like ice cream. So you know what I mean? Like it's ice cream, it's ice cream. Mm-hmm. It can be, it, it's, you know, it's, 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 it's like, oh, that, that'll, that'll, you'll do that. Like, you know, like that'll never work. It's like ice cream in hell or whatever, you know? <laughs> <laughs> that route will never go. Yeah. Be, MC yeah. put the bolts in that. Okay. Yeah. That's cool. He, he put the bolts in that and he's like, I think you can do this. And he gave it to me. Mm. And um, the year I did it was 1997. And, and uh, Chris Sharman and uh, Tommy Caldwell had come to Utah to climb with us. And I was working on this other route, the first descent of this other route called the Big Smile. And, oh, I, yeah. and I thought that it was harder than Super Tweak. And I was really, I was working on it and Sharma did it in one day. Oh my God. And, and I was like, Oh my gosh. And they were staying, at least Chris was staying with me for a while. And so, um, I was like, okay, let's go do ice cream. I've got a, I've got a harder one for you. And, um, we ended up working on it together, but I ended up doing it. Oh, wow. Yeah. He, it didn't suit his jumpy style. Hmm. 
you have to climb it really static. And so if you think about Jared Roth, Dave Graham, and James Litz, mm. and me and my style, it's very it's a very controlled style of climbing. So you kind of have to, you know, almost like lock everything very carefully. Mm -hmm. And Sharma was so used to just like jumping to things and holding on, and he wasn't able to do that on those holds. Mm. This is after Necessary Evil? This is after Necessary Evil, yeah. Okay. Do you remember what that felt like when he showed up and did that route? That was a long-term project of yours. Yeah, I, I mean, at that point, so there's a couple of things in climbing that have like stopped me in my tracks, floored me, right? Mm. It was not Necessary Evil. It That was a foregone conclusion. It was when Sharma did Super Tweak in two days. Mm. Like it, that just seemed outrageous to me. It was like just a total hard reset reboot of my of what I thought was possible. Wow. And then when 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 Honnold did um, Moonlight Buttress, it just mm. also did the same thing. I mean, when he did El Cap and all the other things he's done, I mean, I get it. Like way harder. I know he'll never fall off of Moonlight. I get it. He flashed it. He'll never fall off of it. I get it. Still freaked me the fuck out. Mm, mm -hmm. Still just totally like turned my world upside down. <laughs> I was I was completely blown away by that. Mm. Wow. I remember hearing you say, I think this might have been in King Lines, one of those films, um, that when Chris came and did that, I think he said something along the lines of like, cool, okay, time for me to kind of sit back, let this next generation take over take the torch yeah did that did that relieve some did you have like were you feeling pressure to that point or drive or um what changed i guess i mean i think you know i mean we're, we're sitting here in the middle of like simone biles like checking out of some of these olympic events is it's happening right now right like timestamps this <laughs> this interview but it's it's happening and i think that it like the not i wouldn't i never felt pressure but i felt a responsibility to keep pushing as long as it was as long as i was able to push mm. i felt a responsibility to climbing and not in a negative way i never begrudged it but i was kind of like when am i when is it not going to be you know, on me so much, you know what I mean? Um, and I get that that doesn't, that that sounds really, it, it could be construed as dickish. It's not, it, I, I don't mean, I don't think that I was the best climber, but like I was right there. You know what I mean? I was doing things that were, I, it was important to keep advancing the sport. Mm. And I was a part of that in, in my own way. And um, and with that, there is some responsibility and it, it, it is demanding to, 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 to train and to, to keep trying to break barriers. It's, it's hard. It, it takes its toll. You know, I, it was, it was, I'm grateful for the opportunity to, to, I broke that HC barrier in America, but, but, um, I don't need to do that again, <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's, um, I have other things that I'm interested in doing with my life too. Mm. 
you know, um, I don't know. This probably, I don't know. You can probably erase that whole thing. <laughs> I, 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 no, that was, that was good. It didn't come off as arrogant or anything. It makes sense to me. And it's, what's interesting to hear you say all that though, is that it seems like you have something in you that, that feels this ongoing need to continue to help move things forward and progress. Cause you've done that with products now, you know, you've moved away from trying to do that by putting up harder and harder routes, but you've continued to do that. You know, you're doing that now with grasshopper, right. you're, you're doing your part to keep things moving forward. Yeah. 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 I, I appreciate, I appreciate you saying that. And I, and I think, you know, it's, it, it, I think it is important. You know what I mean? And it's like, I guess I feel like once, I, I, that experience was like, I was never going to that, like I was never going to have the experience again of doing that. I had that it didn't, it wouldn't have been the same for me again. Right. As super tweak, as super tweak. I did yeah. it. It was, it was hard. It was. Did the climbing world see that at the time? Did, did they recognize how, I mean, at first 14 being in America in case people haven't caught on to that. Did people understand that? Did you feel like I think you people, were recognized? In your I think people for that? recognized that it was legitimately 14B. Yeah, it wasn't the first route that was graded 14B. Oh, okay, but I think people recognized that it was it, it was it was there. It now now 14B exists in America, mm. um, and you know it'll be interesting to it, it'll be interesting historically to see. I mean, all, you know, all these things, it's like, it, I got that credit. Um, I'm grateful for that. I'm humbled by that experience, that whole thing. Um, I always knew my own shortcomings and my lack of, you know, like where I knew my strengths and I knew my weaknesses. And it was finally fun to see somebody come along and kind of just be so decisively better that like okay i mean the, like pressure's off mm. i can go climb for fun now mm. like really again you know what i mean mm -hmm. nobody was putting pressure on me it was me it was me feeling uh you know like gosh if i gosh if i am like if it is on me then i'm i love climbing i'm gonna keep i'm gonna keep trying to push it but it was it was there was a sense of relief when when it was like somebody else now. Mm. And fortunately for me and a lot of people, a lot of people don't have the ex experience to experience like a, you know, a milestone like that. It was a nice experience for me. Mm -hmm. I was fortunate in the right place at the right time for sure. Yeah. In the subsequent years with, you know, your in your period of drifting, as you described it earlier, uh, doing all these amazing trips and making all these great films with MC and, you know, best of the West and then going to New Zealand and uh, frequent flyers. Like, is there a favorite climbing trip, a favorite film from your perspective that really stands out? I mean, all of those, all of those with MC, I mean, we, we, I mean, we're like brothers. We have so much fun. Right. And, and just all, they're all, God, there's there's definitely stories from every single one of them. I mean, <laughs> you know, probably the most stories that some of the most stories might come out of even 
a trip to China that we did together that he did um I think his I think he did it something for Momentum Video magazine at that point mm. on this trip that we did to China and Sharma was on that and we hooked up with some local Chinese climbers and you know just just uh had a blast but you know like um they all they're all I mean obviously the frequent flyers trip was epic you know it was a first real like it, it was the first bouldering trip around the world probably ever filmed, mm. right? Yeah. <laughs> it was pretty audacious. We took one bouldering pad between three climbers. <laughs> Nobody yeah. had ever done that. Wow. We didn't take ropes. We didn't take harnesses. In 2000, you know, it's like it's still at a point when climbing magazines weren't even really printing bouldering photos because it was just practice climbing. Mm. So that was fun. You told me earlier today that uh, your wife had never seen any of your your films and that you just had a chance to watch all of them together Yeah, and go through them all. What was that like? What's it like to watch oh, them just, again? I mean, it's just fun. I mean, we watched them with MC and we just, we're just laughing. I mean, it's just, we're howling. <laughs> the, the cool thing is, is that they, you know, Mike's such a good storyteller that um, he's, his films are just really well put together. They're awesome. I love them. You know, they're yeah. just really well put together. They have, you know, again, it's like, I, you know, it's structure. The, the structure of his films are really solid. So, um, and you know, just uh, just typically fun, fun stories, you know? There's some kind of, he finds some, some, some kernel of interest down in there someplace. Mm -hmm. And he's working, in, uh, you guys are working together again? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we are <laughs> he's in he's not getting out he's you not getting out i in. need him because it's like the only you know it's like it's like he and i could finish each other's sentences we think the same way like mm. we edit each other's work he you know it's like if if i need if i need a a, a good opinion about anything Mike will give me that and he'll do it the way I like it, which is he'll, he'll tell me to remove a bunch of stuff. Mm. He'll make it simpler. He'll minimalize it. Right. And that's, that's just the way that we both end up working. And I think that's the reason his films work so well. It's like, he's not trying to do too many things, mm. you know, it's, it's, he'll, it's uh it's a minimal and kind of a simple approach. Or it's like, you know, he, he talks about this in the artist. It's about reduction. Right. Reductive process. Mm -hmm. So what's the least we can do? What's the least we can say? I love that. So it's all about minimalism. I've talked about this before on the show, but I think my all-time favorite climbing film is Best of the West. And one of my favorite things about that film is that it's basically the soundtrack is one song. He just uses the same song like 15 times yeah, over yeah. and over and over again yeah, yeah. in the movie. And it's, it's, it works so well. It yeah. just ties the whole thing together. You feel like, you feel like you're just out for a long day of climbing, just listening to a good tune with your friends, you know, yeah. it just, yeah. It's I'm great. Gl I'm glad you like that. It's a, <laughs> that's a good one. Super fun. I asked you today what Mike's role was with Grasshopper, and you just said that he's just basically interchangeable with you. That you, you guys, just both are Swiss Army knives and do do all the things. Yeah, I mean, we can, you know, between Mike and Bailey and I. I mean, we're the we're we're the three people that 
that understand the, the business inside and out, mm. like every aspect of it. Now we have a we have other people in there that are learning it and they're doing a, a, a fantastic job. We we brought in a an amazing CEO and a and a financial guy and like we're trying to run it like a real company mm. and um and they are they've been invaluable in the in the growth process for us you know and um but they're still learning parts of the business that they that they they're still learning parts of the business and neither of them have the same tribal knowledge that Mike and ba Bailey and I have when it comes to climbing right you know so um they're successful business people and they are putting into the best you know like we're we're implementing best business practices and systems and processes and things like that that are really important financial um responsibility all these things right time put implementing timelines and like allocating budgets and things like that but there's certain aspects to what we're doing that's still just an educational process and it's like we're still peddling an idea you know, mm. and it's like the light bulb goes off when, if I walk you through the shop like you came in today, yeah, probably had a lot of questions. Yeah. Then I start walking you around, start answering some of the questions. And I mean, you seemed like it made a lot of sense. <laughs> it made a lot of sense before I even came in today, man. I mean, I saw some of your videos. I love climbing on the boards. Um, but, you know, I, I don't think that any of them are perfect. I think I have some like, you know, from climbing a lot on the moon board and the tension board, I'm like, hmm, huh, that's cool. But I would tweak the, if it were me, I would have tweaked this or, you know, I yep. wonder why they didn't do that or things like that. And just seeing your videos and some of your promotions so far, I had that feeling with, uh, with Grasshopper, just seeing what you were doing, like, wow, they might've really nailed it. They might've really you know, th this, this is cool. This is yeah. new. And it addresses some of those problems that were kind of, because I'm the same way. I'm an engineer, I'm a problem solver. I always think of things through that lens of, you know, if something is bothering me, whether it's a song I'm listening to or a product I'm using or anything, I'm pretty aware of why, you know, or I'm, I'm really curious. I want to know why, like, why, why, what would I change about this? I, I love kind of picking things apart like that. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I mean it's 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 really cool. It's awesome to see what you're doing. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. So so it starts to make sense like when you're kind of walked through it, right? Mm -hmm. But like we're even we were even talking about it earlier today. Like it's hard for people to even wrap their head around the scale and the forces that are involved with all of this and the engineering that goes into it. And I think that there's like, I mean, I see, and it's not it's not misinformation, like like the that term is being thrown around these days. <laughs> fake it's news. It's just, it's not fake news. It's not misinformation, but there is a lot of naivete out there and, and, and a misunderstanding of like what, you know, what one of these adjustable climbing walls actually needs to do and how it needs to function. And I think that it's just a, it's a process of education. And so when we get in front of people or people come to our, our showroom, they start to get it mm -hmm. they're like oh i see right mm -hmm. and so that's just you know that's just a long that's that's just the long game and, yeah and and mike and bailey and i 
because we we understand climbing, because we understand climbing culture, because we're friends with some of the most influential people out there, we can continue to peddle this these ideas mm. and and you know and get more and more traction. It seems like you've always been able to kind of zoom out and see like see climbing in a larger context. It, it sounds like you suspected that climbing would be in the Olympics someday, way before it was reasonable to think that, <laughs> like when there was not a lot of evidence <laughs> leaning towards that yet. And, you know, now you can see, you have this vision, we talked about it today of, you have this vision of, you know, like pe- corporations be, and, and corporations being yeah. willing to spend a lot of money on this awesome, on these awesome products and these awesome walls. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, to put them, to build new facilities around them or to provide them for their employees or whatever it is. And it addresses the climbing need. Right. Right. So one thing that we can talk about is that we installed one of these at a at an HOA at a brand new, like, uh, I think there's 1600 um, rooms or whatever apartments, right? In this, in this facility out here in West Valley City. And in the middle of the courtyard is a rec center area. It's got your full blown weight system. It's got a full court basketball. It's got our premium grasshopper board in there. It's got a pool. It's got a barbecue pit. It's It's got, you know, it's like all the amenities that millennials and people like my age and younger want and need. It's right on the public trans- transit line. We've actually had people you know, DM us and say, where is this place? I'm moving to Salt Lake. And mm. holy shit, I've, they've got the full, the, the best version of the grasshopper board. That's all I need. Like mm. I'm there. And and they have confirmed that it's, th- this this HOA group has confirmed that it's like the number one attraction. Wow. That and the basketball court are, are really appealing to people, but it's not, <laughs> you know, every place has a weight room and right. like stair steppers and treadmills and a pool. Mm-hmm. That's not what people are psyched about. We've, I mean, I've even been in there when people have come in and gone, holy shit, that's sick. Mm. I'm, this is the place I'm going to rent from, right? Yeah. So it's, it's like, it solves the problem, you know, like, like these, like how many corporate campuses have climbing walls that are built that just are not getting used. They're not mm. getting, they, they don't know how to staff them. They maybe built them too high. And now you've got to deal with ropes and you've got to deal with harnesses. And it's like, people just want to go climbing. We've created something that allows you to go climbing. And just like a treadmill is probably the best way to train for climbing Everest. A routine on a treadmill is the best way to climb train for Everest. It's like the, our board the grasshopper board, I think, is as good as anything to train for your projects outside. I think because I think you can tailor make it for what it needs to be. And we've we've kept a lot of real estate open to for future development, just even on the surface. Mm. You know what I mean? Like we haven't we haven't said this is the end all be all. I think that. I think that the, the the way that it's set up right now is... Um, <clears throat> as far as the hold set? The hold set, yeah. yeah Nothing yeah. is going to change radically, I promise you that. Yeah. For the foreseeable future, if ever. 
but there's a lot of unused real estate on that board. Mm. We've covered the basics with what we've already got. Mm -hmm. Josh did a great job with that, right? Josh Larson. The Larson, yeah. Yeah. One thing I noticed on the board, I mean, it's it's very pleasant to climb on. And it's not, like we were still doing, I, I climbed on it today for people listening. I got to try it out. And we were still doing climbs that had tensiony, weird moves that feel like outdoor movement. You know, like you're not quite in the right body position and you just have to kind of suck it up and deal with it, which is what I love about the boards. Yeah. But it was still pleasant. Like the holds are comfortable and everything's ergonomic. Yeah. I'm curious how you think about, like, I think there is value in having some nasty little heinous holds on the indoor climbing walls to yeah. kind of, tra- tra- you know, whether, whether that's training physiologically or just mentally, um, or just getting used to it. Yeah. Any I thoughts think, on that? Yeah. So I, I do have thoughts on that. So I think if you're going to train for a route like ice cream, you need, you need to climb on holds like ice cream, right? What are those like? Like little tiny tweaky like like the size of a a cigarette for three fingers yeah sharp and and i agree that you need to do that that was not the first that was not on the list of necessary things for this to to start Uh, the holds that we have on there right now are they i think that the hardest holds on there are as hard as any board out there yeah they're still they're still crimping there there's some nasty little holds on there but they're not made for they're not they're they're made to be used at all the angles Mm. and i think the way that it gets the way that it gets fine-tuned and i and i say this because i think that there's like there's a way to fine-tune it for exactly what you need it to be that's the reason that we left that real estate open. Mm. And that is going to be more specific to the type of project that you you might have. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there, there are people like Josh Larson said, he's like, I don't want to climb on tweakier, smaller, little holds. I mean, and that guy boulders, you know, he, he's like, I can do V14s on this, on this wall all day that you know like it's not a big deal mm. they're just different kinds their mm. compression their uh body you know body tension all this stuff it's not just like nasty little tiny crimper holds however i want some of those because i like climbing on that stuff i'm sure <laughs> dave graham wants those because mm-hmm. he loves that stuff sharma probably more like josh larson you know <laughs> yeah. where it's like i can get i can i can go my whole life without climbing on like the you know i'm sure that Sharma can say, I can go my entire life without climbing on ice cream ever again. <laughs> right? Right. <laughs> I'm sure he can say that. So, you know, when he does things like in Best of the West, like the like the direct start to the flame and, and yeah. those, you know. Um, Steep, slappy. Dude, that yeah. stuff is absurd. That is like, I will never, ever in my whole life, I can't even imagine climbing that stuff. Mm. I'm glad that I have a friend that I can watch do it. <laughs> you know, um, I like... I like little nasty crimpers and I, and I, there's a few of us out there that like that stuff, but, but I think that those would be optimized for 30, 40, 50 degrees overhanging. Okay. And, and those, those, those same holds might not, they might be so kind of nasty and sharp and, and tweaky that they just get in the way at 
10 and 15 degrees. They'd just be uncomfortable and kind of nasty. Mm. You know what I mean? So I think that there's certain angles and certain types of holds at certain angles now that we can really go in and fine tune the board and really dial it in specifically for what, for your specific project almost. Yeah. That's does that awesome. make sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah. We've, we've thought about this a lot. Right, I can tell, yeah. You know, we thought about this from the inception and we and we purposely did not want to overdo. I mean, right now, our board is as dense as a moon board and we think that that's totally fine. That's adequate, but it's designed to be upgraded and more density added at a later date. We just think that it can be done in a more thoughtful way as we get more and more feedback and mm. see what's missing. Mm -hmm. Cool. Let's zoom out for a second. Can you just describe what you got, where you guys are at right now? Like what products you have available for people, what you're offering for people? Yeah. So we have three sizes of climbing walls right now. Um, a starting in the middle with the uh, standard eight by 12 size wall that is kind of it, 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 the moon board. That's is, the same as the moon board. That's the same as the moon board. Same as the tension has a, a set for that eight by 12. Kilter has a set for the eight by 12. The first, let me, let me, let me go back to, to the size, like why, why the sizes? First of all, a lot of people want one of these walls. The first barrier to entry is, well, some people would tell you that it's cost, but I can get around that because, because, because the things cost what they cost because that's what they cost. It's like, if you want a good mountain bike, you're going to spend $8,000 for it. That's you know? just the, the education it's part. Just, it, that's the educational part. I can mm. get around the cost. The part that is real, it's a real barrier to entry and it will always be is space. Mm. and these walls still take up a lot of space. You think of an 8 by 12 wall as not being that big, and it's not when you look at it inside a climbing gym, mm -hmm. but it's pretty damn big when you go to fit it in your house. Yeah. And most garages don't, most garages are, you know, don't have 12 and 13 foot ceilings. So we've, we're working with a lot of people building houses that are, that are designing our walls into their house. Oh, that's so cool. And they, <laughs> you know, they, they're, they're, they're creating space in their building plans, right? So we, we get architects reaching out to us and they say, our customer has, has requested that we reach out to you guys and get all the specs we need to, you know, get this wall. So, so because the eight by 12 wall, I mean, that was the beginning. That was the, that was the moonboard standard. That seems like the, a, a perfect size wall, right? Kilter came along and said, 12 by 12 is better. Well, 12 by 12 is definitely better. If you've got the space, it's, it's better. More space is better. Does it need to get bigger than 12 by 12? I think not. Mm. That's maybe the, the biggest it needs to get. Will it get bigger? Somebody will make a bigger wall. Does it need to get bigger? I don't think it does. And neither does Josh. Josh thinks that he can set any relevant anything on a 12 by 12. He thinks he could even set like World Cup boulders on a 12 by 12. Mm. So, so that's, that's where we're headed with that. 
so we'll put a 12 by 12 at the TC and we'll see what we can do with that. Okay. Um, and then, and that won't be with the set. That'll be something else. That'll be like, you know, an experience. That'll be the beginning of some, something, some new direction. And when you say the TC, that's the USA Training Center? <laughs> yeah, USA Climbing Training Center in Salt okay. Lake. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> and then probably the most relevant is the ninja which is is uh eight foot wide but only 10 feet tall mm. and that was absolutely based on necessity and that is that that is i can't even fit one of those in my house well i maybe could over here but it's not i don't want to put it in here yeah yeah that I would really put it in my basement oh change your space in my yard mm -hmm. and it, my garage is too short mm -hmm. <clears throat> luckily i have a 12 by 12 at my shop so <laughs> 10 minutes away that's all mine. Did you start a climbing board company because you couldn't fit one in your house? <laughs> exactly. I, yeah, 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 yeah. Just meeting his own needs. Yeah. Uh, no, I needed a good reason to make good photos again. Let's talk about that. <laughs> you said that earlier today, and I was like, that is fascinating. You, you're a professional photographer, at least you have been in the past. Um, tell me about photography with a purpose or without a purpose. Well, you know, like... Um, the photography business is is dynamic it's challenging it's it's arduous um and you're let's just let's just face it you're basically selling a service for you're selling you're selling your your service right um and you're selling you know in a way you're just prostituting your creativity mm. and it's that i don't mean to sound vulgar because that's but but Ultimately, that's kind of what you're doing as a commercial photographer. And I love photography. I loved what we were doing back in the days with Pusher. Um, we were pushing, you know, we were pushing photography in in our in our sport along. I think in a way that resonated with people. And um, you know, a few years ago, Jared Roth kind of dusted off pusher and kind of resurrected it brought it back to life and asked me if we could use some of those images and i was like yeah cool and um i started seeing them and i saw all the reactions from people you know and it was like that's that's really that's meaningful like those those photographs actually resonate with people you know and i and i so i just started thinking about I just started ruminating on this idea of like the next evolution of my career. And I thought maybe if there's a way to get entrepreneurial, I met this guy, Jeremy Huckins, who's a fabulous engineer. We kind of bonded over like building out vans. Okay. And we were actually going to do create a van company, a van build out company. Oh, no way. Yeah. It was not going to be called Grasshopper and it was going to be something about vans. And we had a really great idea. And obviously you're into vans and you know the importance of van life and I'm, I'm all about it. And I think, you know, I think ultimately Grasshopper made the right decision to pivot into, into climbing walls. It just happened um, because my, my wife was... Uh, running moon climbing north america so we had firsthand understanding of what was going on in the board market we understood that it was super appealing we understood that it was 
that that the product market fit had not been met yet because mm. you i mean nobody can climb on a moonboard you know what i mean it's like for elite climbers right made by elite climbers for elite climbers yeah. and so when i say nobody can actually climb on that it's like i love the moonboard it's my it's my second favorite board after my own <laughs> but yeah. but but and i and i i love the moonboard i love the 2016 setup i i love those little yellow crimpers i think that they're awesome and i love doing the problems on there and um but like i mean 0.0001% of the climbing population can wrap their head around the moonboard the lights are in the wrong place the holds are too tweaky nobody can warm up on it nobody can give it a shot and so it has really limited appeal you know what i mean you're only going to sell to the endemic market for so many boards right mm -hmm. and um i just think i think that the light the led boards are such a such a breakthrough i i see climbing blowing up i know people want to climb i see i know how much it costs to build a crappy climbing wall that's never going to be staffed properly mm. i've seen those get collect dust over the years nobody knows what to do with them they take up a bunch of space and i just think this is this is the way to solve that problem it's a win-win-win for everybody mm. you know what i mean like i can put i can i can solve a problem for a corporate campus i can solve their their climbing needs way faster and easier and cheaper and better and more effectively than any company trying to build climbing walls mm. yeah it just it doesn't make sense what makes sense is to drop one of my freestanding walls in and a pad and the lights and all the route setting is done and the you know it's there's a social aspect to this i'm talking to corporate entities that are interested just in the fact that this this is something that 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 corporate managers can gather around and actually have a meeting around this thing oh wow they're <laughs> like awesome. meetings are not happening when everyone's on a treadmill yeah but wow, the social aspect of sitting around one of these boards and climbing is a really interesting thing to some of these tech companies that we're talking to. That is so cool. Yeah, it, it is really cool. Like the, 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 like the light bulbs start going off and you're like, this is the tip of the iceberg. Mm. This is just getting started. <laughs> that's, oh, that's so exciting. We covered the three sizes. So you guys sell walls, you sell hold sets, you sell them separately or together. Uh, you had Josh Larson do all the setting and put all, you know, figure out where all He's the He's the mastermind behind the core set or the route setting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. He, he did the layout and, and it's, it's, it's symmetrical or mirrored so that, so that you can flip the problems. And it used and, the app just like the other yeah. boards and yep. LED lights and all the yep. thing. Tell me about the route function because that's unique and super cool. Yeah, so the route function is basically a series of animated boulder problems that, that is in a, that's in a timeline, like, like a movie, like a movie, like it, you know, it goes from one to the next. It's different than four by fours, or it's different than just stacking boulder problems because you can do a sequence that's a hundred frames long. And each frame can have like, can reveal like three to five moves in it. And so the coolest thing for me about the board, at least where I'm at right now, which is like my interest is right now is in sport climbing more than bouldering. And Training power endurance, like real effective power endurance, 
and endurance. There's a lot of climbers out there, good climbers that have probably never experienced being able to shake out on like door jam edges and recovering fully mm. and having that sort of amount of stamina. Um, they see it in other climbers, but they've never experienced it. You can actually get that kind of stamina on this board. And I've seen, I've seen good climbers try it with like tread walls and other kind of rotational kinds of things. And, you know, I know that Jackie Gutoff used to go and, and try to do a thousand feet of like seven B on a, you know, like on a shunt or whatever they are, like the mini tractions or whatever mm -hmm. in the Veradone Gorge to get, to start getting his fitness up. I mean, people have tried it all these different ways, but the way that we're able to do it, you know, on the same routes again, so, it, so these routes don't change. You can change the angle so you can dial in the exact difficulty. I put you on a route today that was 12A at 20 degrees, right? Yeah. You tip it back to 30 degrees and it's 13A. And that's pretty rad because like you can literally, I mean, it's almost a cheat code to get to 13A, right? Like mm. you run enough laps on this thing at say 20, then you go to 21 degrees, then you go to 25 degrees, wow, then you go to yeah. 28 degrees, you get to 30 degrees, you do it. It's just a faster way to, to get to that goal, mm. right? Because the route is still 13A. Right. D does it matter how many, how much you practiced it or cheated, you know, the angle to get to it. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's like, we know for a fact in training that, that like training moves easier at higher velocity makes, gives you faster returns. Right. So like modern training for like, say speed climbing would be to teach speed climbing at like 10 degrees off vertical so that you learn all of the movements and all of the, you know, all of the, um, uh, you, you learn, you, you get velocity, you get actual speed by training it. Imagine if you could have a speed wall that was 10 degrees off vertical, and then you finally tip it back and you're incrementally keeping that speed up. Mm. Like by modern training practices, that would be the fastest way to get to that result. Mm-hmm. Is that what you mostly do to, is that how you're mostly training on it is? I'm, I love to, I, I mean, I love to session with my friends and I'm yeah. not as committed as I should be to training. I'm also. Well, you're building a business right now. I'm building a business and I'm <laughs> maxed and I, I climb for fun. Like when you guys, when we climbed this morning, right? Yeah. I, I love that. And you don't warm we, up very long. <laughs> we didn't, we didn't, we didn't warm up enough, did we? But, um, uh, but if, we could have, cause there's great holds on that thing. If I, if I, yes, gun to my head, that's my favorite part about the board. And if you're in with, if like Bailey and I will, will try the same routes together. We've, we've, we'll go in there and we'll session, but it's like, look, the recovery time between boulder problems and the recovery time between roots is a totally different thing. Mm. So like, you know, think of how long you sit underneath a root between Burns and Smith. Oh, yeah. Or an AF, right? Half it's an like hour at 15 least. minutes or a half an hour. And it's the same thing when you're doing that. So it's like, I guess at my shop, I could, I could uh, try a route, then maybe go answer a bunch of emails and come <laughs> back and try a route again. Yeah. Um, but we haven't, I haven't gotten that committed yet, but I think it's the, I think it's the sort of the, the real unlock on that board. And, and 
the thing that makes it it work because that feature is available on other boards but the other boards don't have the variable size holds mm. so we have you know we have you know 15 basically 15 like like jugs on our wall eight 14 jugs on our wall that are there to facilitate this and we have we also have a bunch of really crappy footholds that make moves harder. So like, it's easier to fine tune exactly what you need in the way that Josh has laid out the wall. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like you can find an easy or a hard way through a sequence. Through every section of through the wall. Through every sequence, through every section of the wall. And yeah. what you're not having to do is, you're not having to turn into like a, like a high shoulder move to make it a hard move, right? You're not just turning the same size holds different directions. Um, it's like you've, we've actually, I mean, our, the, the board, you know, the way that it's laid out, you can do, like you said, it's fun. Even if the moves are hard or awkward, they're not just awkward for the sake of being hard. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. They're awkward because because the footholds that were chosen, at least on that like on that rose move, mm -hmm. was in the exact right spot to 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 feel to like, force that move to force that move. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A different foothold, totally different move. Right. You know. Right. Yeah. Do you think? Uh, do you think someone, if anyone's listening to this and they're intrigued, uh, they want to put a ninja in their house in their ten foot garage? Do you think the root function works on the ninja? It does. Okay. It does. For sure. It's, you know, every every time you ratchet down the size, you lose some function. But having a board, I mean, the ninja's probably bigger than the woody that you built at your house that you got as strong mm. as you've ever been strong. All right. Right. <laughs> right. That was an eight-foot garage. So, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. like, the ninja is a really nice size wall. And there's a lot of, I mean, Kilter makes a ninja size hold set. Mm. Tension makes a ninja size hold set. And our ninja size is also we designed our we designed our holds set. The, the ninja hold set is not like just a crop of another bigger wall. It's like it was designed to be functional at 10 feet. Mm-hmm. And then you expanded. You and added. then we expanded beyond yeah, yeah. that. that and we'll sense. keep expanding. I don't know if we'll go much. I don't know that it's necessary to go bigger than 12 by 12. Yeah. Can you tell me about necessary evil and where that fits in for, for you? I yeah. asked you today if you still had outdoor projects. Or... So I, I do. I would like to go back and I would tr I'd like to try necessary evil. It's um, I love the climbing on that wall. It's. If I were ever to do, I, I'm stronger. I probably, I probably could be stronger now than I was back then. If I, because I have more like systemic strength now than I did back then. More, what does that mean? Like, like more like my, probably my back is stronger. Probably my, my shoulders are stronger. Uh, my biceps are stronger. From uh, training or from? Just, yeah. I mean, I, I do. Like I have a yoga practice that I that I do. I I I try to. My body hurts a lot, um, so I have to figure out how to make it feel better. And so strengthening weak muscles has been a big part of that. Getting more flexibility, more more stretching, more strength, more systemic strength has been a big part of all that. 
So I'm a little bit more robust than I used to be. Um, I was like borderline crippled like 15 years ago. <laughs> oh, wow. So, um, and just from like hard bouldering, hitting the ground hard, just like not taking care of myself. Mm. Um, but it came back. Yeah. You feel good. That's, yeah. that's cool to hear. Yeah. Um, a lot of people just give into that, I think, and decide that they're old now. And Yeah, fuck that. Awesome. That's not that's not a viable option i'm i'm gonna i'm gonna keep fighting hard to 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 keep yes to try to keep you know like i don't need to be relevant i don't need to do anything but like i i think i think i have a i think i have a chance at doing necessary evil (laughs) well that'd be a hell of a story it would be a hell of a story i the one thing that's that's the one thing that's kind of in my way right now is i have and this is sounds so silly but like i have this like trigger point in my lower wrist, this this muscle that's just kind of locked up, and it's like keeping my index finger from working very well. Hmm. But I'm I'm waking it up. So um, if you've been around me for the last six months, I'm constantly like digging into my wrist and kind of trying to open this thing up. Hmm. Um, and we'll see. I mean, it's just it's just I'm just prodding and poking around in there to try to get this thing like working again <laughs> so weird yeah <laughs> do you want it do you want a tequila i'd love one all right yeah i'm gonna Te- pour a tequila and tequila turn on this break. light yeah yeah reminds me of mexico mm-hmm. cheers cheers thank you yeah always good take we're back we're back tequila in hand you can hear the ice cubes what are we drinking I don't know, like Luna something. Okay. It's just a bottle that I bought the other day. It's similar to like Casadoras or. It's really good. Yeah. It's just. A, I don't sip on tequila very often. This is great. I spend a lot of time in Mexico. Okay. So. You s- surfing? Is that why? I love surfing. Yeah. Yeah. I love surfing. I, um, think, I think I listened to you on the Enormo cast some years ago. Oh yeah. And at the time it had sounded like you kind of were done. You're like done climbing and you were just like, I love surfing. I take some photos and life is good. Yeah. That was, that was probably really just before this whole project got started. Okay. And I don't know why. I don't, I don't know. I do love, I do love surfing. If I could be anywhere in the world right now, it'd be somewhere around surf. Mm. Um, also climbing. I mean, I love climbing, but it's like, so if I could do necessary evil, it would be like, that <laughs> oh, would right. be That's epic, what we were talking about. Yeah. Right. But otherwise, <laughs> yeah. climbing to me is just, um, I'll never be better than I was. Mm. And so it's like, I love going climbing, um, but it's, but surfing is still a new challenge. Mm. You know what I mean? Was, I it am, all, was that always a big part of it for you, the challenge? Because it's it's interesting hearing you talk about the grasshopper and how it fits your needs. I'm sure there's a lot of people listening to this thinking like, well, you're not rock climbing. You know, you're not outside. You're not in nature. You're not, ta- you know, checking all these other boxes. But it sounds like for you, it's it's always been more about, again, moving forward. With- yeah, So so like... Like, um, just so that there's no confusion. Yeah. Climbing outside is the pinnacle of climbing. Mm. And I'll always prefer to do that. However, 
with limited time, mm. I have, I, I can't spend 40 to 50 to 60 hours outside at any crag again in my life, probably. Right. right? I mean, that's so many hours. I know. I know. That's really the, what you were and, doing? And the, well, yeah, when I was young and that was my life. I mean, that God. was what I did, you know? And maybe it was just 40 hours. Maybe it was just 30 hours a week, but I mean, it was a full-time, like that's a full-time job basically, right? Yeah. And so what what's important to me is that when I do go outside, the, those days that I go outside are the most important days. When I do go outside, I want to perform at a decent level. Mm. Not not like I don't have to be world class. I'm happy, you know. I like to say I want to be eight A fit. Like I just want to be eight A fit. That's fine. I can go anywhere in the world and I can climb five twelves and five thirteens. I'm super happy, right? And and Bailey and I can sort of do that together. And that would be that's great. But like at the point that I'm at in my life right now with a job that that is fairly demanding and i know that there's not just me out there with a demanding job i know a lot of other people that have real jobs that that are demanding and they've got families and they've got other things that they like to do um you know what what's cool about the the board is that it allows me an opportunity to stay within striking distance at all times mm, you got it that's what's special about it mm-hmm a viable way and it's not just going to the climbing gym and hoping for a new set which is always like moving a goalpost every time that they take down the v5 and they replace it with the v4 there could be three or four grades of disparity you know in those grades even though i mean they could replace the v5 with the v5 and there's one's v3 and one's v7 and you never know like it's just mm -hmm. a moving target all the time mm -hmm. and so that model just doesn't work for me in the like in a very real way yeah i have only gotten i've the only indoor climbing that i've ever really gotten strong on is a, is woodies mm -hmm. woodies that remain the same that you go back and you like you said like i've never been stronger than that time that i was climbing on my woody yeah lifting some weights and doing a hangboard session it's like because and every single climber that's actually spent a season on a woody will tell you the exact same thing. Mm -hmm. Doesn't matter if it's a woody, a homemade woody, you're, you know, like a moon board, a tension board, a grasshopper board, it doesn't matter. If you're climbing on a woody consistently at 40 degrees, you're just going to get fucking stronger. Full stop. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's, and, and having that at your disposal means that your outside days are that much more meaningful you're not trying to make up for lost time mm. you know what i mean i love being outside but the thing is is i can go outside and i can surf i can go outside and go for a walk with bailey <laughs> you know i can go outside and play golf mm. you know i like being outside a lot mm -hmm. but climbing is a little bit for me like like i know what it feels like to be a good climber i still want to feel like a good climber and the fastest way for me to do that the fastest way for me to get to be good is basically on a on a woody yeah does that make sense it does yeah it totally does what do you think is standing between you and necessary evil aside from this aside from of, the knot in my hand aside from that <laughs> aside from this phase of life and uh being in startup mode basically i mean it's just it's just hard that route is proper hard 
it's you know i don't think anyone's done it or not done it and everyone thinks it's hard yeah so um hard small crimpers um you know extra dry air super super dry and i have super dry skin so like i tend to find those holds really slippery mm. um what's standing in my way i don't know honestly because i honestly think i can do it if i if i bear down and commit it awesome but i i am on the clock <laughs> I, I I am on the clock. I will be 56 this year, and that is I'm definitely on the clock. Yeah. But the route itself, God, that'd be so cool. The route itself is not too hard for a 50 for a fit 56 year old. That's amazing. You know what I mean? It's yeah. not because it's not because of my age. If I don't do it, it's because, um, it's because of a lack of preparation. Okay. And I think. I think I'd like to do it. There was a couple of years ago where, where Bailey was like, I'd like to do this thing in the gorge. And I'm like, there's no fucking way I'm ever going to go down and sit in the gorge again for an entire winter. And then COVID hit and we stopped traveling elsewhere. You know, like we stopped doing exotic travel. Hmm. And the business uh, doesn't allow us to do, you know, it's like COVID hit at the perfect time to to build this business for us because it's like, shut us down but at the perfect time that we just needed to just hunker down and just okay do the stuff that we needed to do you know our routine has been leave the house go to the shop come back to the house mm. 10 o'clock have a tequila go to bed <laughs> do it again the next day mm -hmm. you know what i mean and that's that's been the routine for the entire 18 months of the pandemic wow so I'm jumping on a flight tomorrow. It's like the third time since the pandemic started that I've been on a flight. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, where were we? Necessary evil. What's standing in the way? Yeah, just just lack of preparation. That's awesome. Do you have? I don't know if advice. This it feels funny to ask advice for this, but I'll I'll try it, and we can tweak the question if needed. But do you have any advice for people out there that think that? turning 56 is the end of the world and you know they're doomed to be to be old and not be able to climb hard anymore well like what has kept you you said a fit 56 year old what has kept you feeling healthy and fit i mean could be movement i've, I've or yoga, definitely lived diet, whatever so i think i think it's because i've done i i think it's because i've lived my life with, with like i i abide by the the regret mitigation program right like <laughs> i have lived my life pretty much the way i've wanted to live it and i'm accountable for my decisions my actions and i mean i've always lived actively i've been able to, to keep a decent fighting weight um i've lived my life with some set some level of freedom when it comes to uh my time so i've you know geared my careers and my my life around uh freedom and travel so it's i don't you know i feel like i've had 56 good years and i'm ready for a couple more mm -hmm. you know or more than that i do think that i mean bill ramsey thinks that like that he's finally plateaued 
right? Like he'll tell you that like at like what, 61 or whatever. And 61 with a hip replacement. Yeah, 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 yeah. And he's like, <laughs> ah, damn it. I think finally, like I'm not going to get stronger. Like physiologically, <laughs> I am like, like not able to anymore. And he might be right, but it's like, you know, I, like I said, I try to, I try to practice some amount of yoga every single day. Um, I try to, to just take decent care of myself and try to keep things in perspective mm. and live without literally without re regrets. Mm. And that just takes some, some honest planning and kind of like, uh, projection out, you know, like seeing things from a, from a wider point of view than just like living, you know, just like, like right here. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Is there anything you wish you'd known when you were 20 years old working in the yoga. foundry? Yoga. Yoga. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's the only thing. That's what I tell my boy. I'm like, I'm like, Do dude, yoga. if, if I could, if one thing get, stay, stay fit, strong, systemically strong and, and, and flexible. Mm. How do you practice? Do you watch, do you follow something? Do you watch something? Do you just have your own I routine? I just spend a bunch of time on my mat. Okay. Every and day. Sometimes I literally every day. Yeah. Yeah. In the mornings, mm -hmm. um, in the evenings, first thing I do in the morning with a cup of coffee and the last thing I do in the evening with the tequila <laughs> <laughs> is I'm on the, on the mat. <laughs> I love that. That's, a, <laughs> that's the secret, folks. <laughs> I mean, in the I'm, there's no like. Look, I'm I'm old and bald, and <laughs> but like I don't feel any different than I used to. And Mike that's and I, awesome. MC and I, like we still horse around like children. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? And we play hard. I mean, we still charge as much as we can and do <laughs> stupid shit all the time and just kind of like you just stack up fun memories, fun, fun, like experiences. And it's just, it becomes in and of itself, like the essence of living, mm. you know? That's awesome. Boone, this is a question that I always ask my guests wrapping up. What is something that you've been feeling especially grateful for lately? I mean, all the normal stuff, you know, family and, and friends, you know, and, um, the opportunity to have a life well lived, honestly. And that a lot of that's through climbing. A lot of that's because of climbing, mm. if not most of it or all of it. Amazing. <laughs> Thanks, man. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Yeah, this is really fun. Really fun to get to see what you've been building at the warehouse today. Cool. And I'm really excited to see you uh, what it turns into. Thanks. I think, yeah, I think there's- Yeah, uh, me too. <laughs> yeah. Me too. Yeah, I think it's gonna be a cool road. Yeah, yeah, it'll, yeah. You know, it's interesting because we've, I've seen this, I've seen this before, you know, it, it'll, I'm, I'm, I'm banking on the fact that, well, I'm 99.9% .9 sure that I'm right about this. <laughs> about the the direction finally like mm. this is this is really this is really the right direction for artificial climbing 
And it's for so many reasons, but I'm not sure that it's not going to take a few more years for, mm. the, for it to fully get rolling. Mm -hmm. And I'm, and I'm used to that, you know, it, it, you know, we started Pusher in 1994 and nobody even remembered it. Nobody even, everyone thinks it was like something starting in like 1999. Mm. You know what I mean? It takes a long time to get, to really get a good pace going. Mm. It's not there's, overnight. There's a metaphor for life in there somewhere. <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. Make, make good, like, make, like prepare well. And, um, we're, we're prepared to, we're prepared to stick it out. I mean, we're all really committed. That's and awesome. All like really believe, <clears throat> believe in it. Very cool. So, yeah. Um, see you around. Yeah. <laughs> let's, um, let's climb more, come by, hang out. Sweet. Um, and, uh, we should get outside. I'd love it soon. That'd be great. I'd I mean, it's it. a little hot. It's a little hot. Yeah. But I'll be back through. I mean, this is a, this is a stopping point, um, between all the places I go. So yeah. I'll be back through for sure. Cool. Um, real quick. I want to share, I just remembered this. I'd planned to share this. I, I want to share the story of how we met. I don't think you remember this, which is 100% fine, but it was, uh, I met you for the first time in the Agrigoli at Smith Rock, probably at least five years ago. Okay. And uh, I hiked up to Burlmaster with a buddy of mine. I think I had already done the route and he was trying it and I was going to blame him. And we ran into you, you were up there with, I think, Ian Yurden, yeah, yeah. who's actually been on the show. Yeah. And uh, Will. Ian's, I love Ian. Yeah, he's the best. I mean, I miss that guy so much. Those guys, <laughs> yeah. you know. He's a riot. Yeah. And uh, Will Nazarian, I think, was up there too yeah, with, yeah. with his dog, Rowan. And we just were chatting and we were all chatting about the route. I think Ian had just revolted it or, or put glue-ins in and you were trying it again. And he had he was trying to repeat it again or I can't remember, but we were all talking about it and you asked me for beta. And I remember having this moment where I was like, wow, this... This is so interesting. I felt like immediately I felt like really, in, I've never felt more insecure about my beta. I think I have really good beta generally, but <laughs> Boone Speed asked me for my beta and I was like, oh shit, I hope it's good beta. <laughs> I'm gonna, okay, so yeah, I'll break it down. This is what I do. But you just, it really struck me immediately. I mean, I'd, I'd known who you were for years. I'd seen a lot of these climbing films. I'm, I'm really geeked out on the history of climbing and I knew about Super Tweak and what you had done and it just really hit me like, wow, this guy doesn't care who, who it is. You know, I saw this again when we went into Grasshopper this morning and we're just all having a session and you've got these two young guys in there working for you and feeding off of their energy. Yeah. It doesn't matter to you who it is. You're just a guy who loves climbing and is curious about people. And you just were so genuinely interested in, in me and just the rock climb. And you just wanted to climb the rock climb. Yeah. And it, it I really, I totally remember that conversation. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it really. Because yeah, really there's like weird, like we, always weird beta up there, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> At yeah. Smith, it's like currency. Yeah, 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 for sure. But anyway, I just, um, it was an, it couldn't have been a better first impression of you, and it's so fun to, uh, to be here and to be chatting with you doing this, you know, cool. This, this is something that I hadn't even conceived of at the time. And 
really fun that it's come full circle. But yeah, anyway, cool. Just well, yeah, no, it's been super fun, 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 uh, fun chat for sure. Right on. Well, thanks, man. Yeah, of course. Cheers. Yeah, cheers. Like we do it.